Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> hey, up, you pop crazed youngsters, and welcome to a very festive and special ish episode of Chart Music. I'm your ho ho host, I'll need them. And with me today are the other two wise men. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present Taylor Parks. Morning, across the miles. And Simon Price. I actually did play a wise man in a school nativity play. Hello. Wow, did you? Yeah, yeah. What were you giving away? Oh, fuck knows. But I had a little gold hat on, that's all I can remember. I got photos of it, hey. yeah. I never got to play anyone. I was always the narrator. What's you? Yeah, because I, I had a lovely voice. Did you have a similar kind of cheery tone in those days, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was a, a, the, it, I was spreading the good news. Yeah. <laughs> it was annoying because it... it, it Held back my acting skill, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, it meant I I don't now get those De Niro roles that I yeah. crave. See, you you started off as an authority figure, didn't you? <laughs> I, yeah, I was the narrator in the first nativity I did because I was the only kid in the school that could read at that time. Mm. I was four. Oh. Wow. I had a lovely stay press suit that uh, that was bought for me. Oh, I wish I still had it now, but then again, wouldn't fit me. But. Did your um, end of year school report um, note, you know, your English teacher saying Al is most likely with his English skills to end up working in the pornographic industry? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, chaps, what's been popping interesting in your life? I just fucking knackered, Al. Um, it's, I know, it's such a, a it's a stressful time of year, isn't it? You know, um, it is. I think maybe um, a lot of people who have proper kind of nine to five jobs and uh, they've had their last day in the office. I just yeah. put their feet up and relaxing, but for me, yeah. if anything, it's you know, as a freelancer, it's kind of worse. I don't know because there, there are so many things you you sort of leave undone till the last minute. And I've got family coming to stay. Um, it's it's the first time in my life, um, and this makes me feel very grown up that I'm actually hosting my my mum. You know, she's coming here for Christmas dinner, and also oh, uh, my other half, Janie, her mum. Um, is coming along and their respective Ooh. other halves are coming along. So there'll be the six of us. And um, our parents have met, but they've never spent a significant amount of time in each other's company. So you can imagine Ooh, how shit. terrifying a prospect this is potentially. Are, are any of them well Brexit? Uh, yeah, actually, I'd say three out of, oh, three shit. out of four of them. So it's, it's probably Janie and I are going to have to bite our tongues, if anything. But there we go. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope that goes well, Simon. Cheers. Good luck to you. Taylor. Yeah, I had a I had a pre Christmas flood, as oh, is traditional. Hell, man. Yeah, I woke up um, last. What was it? Wednesday. Um, or, or I was woken up by this noise going, gushum, gushum, gushum. Oh. and I was like, okay. And I knew it wasn't good, so I leapt out of bed, opened the bathroom door, which is where it was coming from, and my toilet was uh, 
propelling gallons of water a foot oh, into the man. air like old faithful um oh, which was gush 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 all over the floor pouring out into my bedroom down the stairs um and also so was the shower drain I oh no you know you get bits of hair stuck in the shower drain and you have to get in a professional to get it out mm. um there was a little bit of hair uh that was starting to form a blockage, just lying a foot away because the sheer force of the water had propelled it oh, out of the pipe and across the shower. Um, and to make matters uh, even more exciting, in the water coming out of the toilet, there were these brown sludgy lumps. Oh, no! Um, and I was like, yeah, this is this probably isn't great. Um, and this went on for four minutes. Ran downstairs, switched the water off at the mains. Uh, it didn't make any difference. Because it wasn't Shit. high water, um, but could hear it raining indoors, so it was oh. all coming through the ceiling. Had to move the telly, sh- shunt everything across the room. Um, eventually, it stopped, and um, yeah, the, the as it happens, all the stuff apart from the telly, which I managed to move in time, all the stuff in my flat, which is actually worth anything, of which there isn't much was all on the other side of the flat, and the flat's on a slight slope. Like Underhill, Barnet's ground, yeah. Precisely, yeah. So all the water, it, it slopes towards the underground car park that's about 15 feet away, yeah. which is probably not good news in the long term. But, um, yeah, so uh, everything that was actually valuable escaped, uh, including the notes I'd scribbled down for this very chart music, oh, which thank, were about... Thank you, Jesus! ...about a foot and a half away. From the water's edge. Good Lord. Uh, it's as it's, if it knew. It's a miracle, I tell you. Yes. A Christmas miracle. <laughs> What's it smelling like in there at the moment? It's, it's, it's a bit bit like an old shed. Yeah. You know. We've had, had to have a new ceiling, but the, the landlord arranged this. God bless him. A new ceiling up because the, it was going to come down in the hall. But, um, yeah, the bits that aren't going to be done until the new year. Uh, yeah, yeah. Got that familiar familiar old gang hut smell to them now <laughs> but the people from thames water came round and stuck a little thing in the water and said uh no it's not sewage uh it's just mains water that that has somehow uh come up out of the toilet and the brown sludgy lumps were sediment off the pipe dislodged by the sheer force of the water, like a uh, like a nineteen year old's ejaculation, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, a new ceiling is in the process of being put up. So, oh Taylor man, we've been fucking fretting about your big style, but just to make absolutely clear to anyone listening out there, Taylor Parks's house does not stink of shit. Okay, ladies. Right before we go any further, uh, I just want to say that yes, this is another Christmas special and uh like the last one uh it's it's been a bit of a fucking last minute rush job uh the editing process is going to be extremely cut and short because we've left it right up to the last minute so it's essentially the podcast version of a box of Ferrero Rocher that's been bought at the last minute from the 24-hour garage uh with really bad wrapping paper on it we could have left it this year but you know what the pop craze youngsters have been very good this year. So, you know, we thought they deserve an early Christmas present. So, anyway, moving on. Christmas, yay, woo, etc. Do you like Christmas these days? I do. I love it, yeah. yeah. Oh, I fucking hate it. No. 
Yeah, yeah, but you to. hate everything, you guys. You hate Halloween. You fucking, you hate everything. No, hang on. You like we bonfire like night. We like two man sound. How dare you? Right, you like two man sound and you like bonfire night. But apart from that, you hate everything. Right, two man sound and shagging. But no, it's, <laughs> I don't. I don't really like Christmas anymore. And it's not just me being miserable because I used to love it. It's yeah. just, I don't know. I've just reached that point in life where it just highlights all the unfortunate things about my situation mm. without yeah, really providing. It's just providing... a big enforced jollity, isn't it? It's a, it's a colder Brooklyn's. Well, yeah, it's like all red letter days now. It's really, <laughs> it's just a milestone uh, shaped like a tombstone with a number Fuck on it, hell. you know. And every year the number gets one lower. It's a number which, <laughs> thank God, my ageing eyes can't quite make out. So, you know, in Dolce Jubilo and all that. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Date you people. Have a laugh. Have a drink. Yeah, I'm going to hunker down. <laughs> have a drive. Go out and see what you can find. <laughs> I'm just going to hunker down for the duration. I'll see you in the terrifyingly named 2019. Yes. I'll tell you what I do like about Christmas, though. Um, I like Jesus as a baby. He was yeah. cute, you know what I mean? He was all right. Yeah. He's better than when you, see, when you see him as an adult, he's got that really long face. Yeah. He's always got this really long, hollow face, like a dagger, um, <laughs> which used to terrify me as a kid because he looked like a like a photo-fit picture of a child murderer. Um, <laughs> a really, really nasty piece of work. Um, so yeah. I feel a lot safer with him in the manger because he, he can't get out of it by himself, you know. Mm. And if he did, he'd be small enough to pick up and drop kick. Before they dealt he... with him in the end, though. I mean, yeah, famously, yeah. famously, yeah. the Romans sorted it out. Yeah. They put an end to the threat. You've got to do something <laughs> before he turns you into a frog or whatever it was he used to <laughs> yeah. do. I can't remember. <laughs> I mean, Christmas Day, I don't mind at all. You know, he's just basically me and my mum sitting about eating and watching shit on the telly. More often than not, stuff on YouTube. Yeah, last year I think we watched on YouTube the All-Star Christmas special on ITV from 1974 or something like that. It was like what the BBC used to do in the 60s. You know, they'd have quick sketches from all their sitcoms. They were short enough to have a good laugh at the, the shitness of, but not long enough to get on your tits. And I think the first one was, well, of course, the first one was Love Thy Neighbour. Of course it was. There was a bit of banter, followed by all the blokes getting drunk, Eddie Booth forgetting to get a turkey, but luckily being invited next door by uh, Bill and Barber. But, oh my God, would you believe the house was full of black people? Uh, yeah. Uh, bloody Nora, we're having a black Christmas. That's good, that, isn't it? Because it's yeah, a play but, on white Christmas. Yes, and, but but then uh, somebody put some steel drum music on and everyone had a bit of a dance. Of course they did. It was nice, man. It was did nice. He, did he speculate that, like, you know, their Christmas dinner might be, like, jerk chicken or something? No, 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 yeah. no. More, more in the realm of missionaries. Yeah, I was going to say that's a yeah. little bit too sophisticated in its awareness yeah. of other cultures. It kind of foreshadows, uh, foreshadows something that's coming up in this show, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll tell you what else I like about Christmas is the song Backdoor Santa by Clarence <laughs> Carter, which I put on every year. It's an amazingly earthy and hilarious record, which stands up for the grand old tradition of Christmas being a time for creepy lasciviousness. Mm. I wish I'd thought of that last night. I was, I was doing a radio show, and uh, I, I was putting on some kind of innuendo-packed Christmas songs. I did put Ella Fitzgerald... Santa Claus got stuck in my chimney, and uh, that that would have been a good kind of you know segue, I think. 
Backdoor yeah. Santa, if I thought of it. Yeah. Yeah. The one I hate is Jingle Bells. I was just um, up in Leeds last week, and they had... Uh, I walked through the, the... Whatever it's called. I don't know. I don't live there. And the street. And I heard four versions of Jingle Bells in the space of a minute. Jesus. Um, there was a... Uh, a sort of a house version playing in the shopping mall and then there was a band playing it outside and then there was like a jazz version playing in the place where I went to get a coffee and then there was some it was oh I hate it because it uses the phrase a one horse open sleigh too many times that's what pisses me off about it Um, (laughs) I've never heard anyone use that phrase except in Jingle Bells no and I've been to the Arctic Circle nobody said it also, it's not no. even a Christmas song. It's like it was actually written for Thanksgiving. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Which is just seems to have been invented by Americans as a spoiler for Christmas. Just to make it's the yeah. genocide holiday. Yeah. Well, also it makes Christmas seem less exciting, doesn't it? Because yeah. you, you spent a month late. Oh, yeah, great. The turkey again. So anyway, before we get stuck into uh, to, to the episode we've looked at, we're not we're not going to do Patreon uh, new Patreon subscribers for the minute because we're doing such a quick turnover. So we're going to give that a rest, but we're going to go straight into the reveal of the chart music Christmas top ten. Oh my God. Down five places to number ten, Lennon bombing a Rastafarian, a non-mover at number nine. B.A. Cunterson. Last week's number eight. This week's number eight. It's still Bummer Dog. Stay in there, Bummer Dog. Stay another day. <laughs> A drop of four places from number three to number seven for Here Comes Jism. First new entry this week at number six. Granny Wants Your Spunk. <laughs> Another new entry at number five for Tito Jackson's Bollocks. A leap of six places from number ten to number four for 15 lighters for a pound man. Into the top three of the highest new entry this week, Fred Westlife. (laughs) This week's number two and it's no change for your dog mates, which means Britain's number one. It's still there as the chop music Christmas number one, Taylor Parks' 20 romantic moments. Anything you'd like to say, Taylor? Congratulations, man. Yeah, yeah well yeah. done, man. Very honoured. <laughs> that's it now. All the compilations, all that, that's what I call Christmas. Taylor Parks' 20 romantic moments are going to be in there, man. You'll be, you'll be wiping your ass on £50 notes before too long, mate. Yeah. Hanging out with Jonah Louie. Also, I see uh, someone reissued Here Comes Jism, which I seem to remember was uh, a Christmas record from last year. I just can't believe that one intestine have already dropped out of the top ten, man. That's shocked me. That's showbiz. Yeah, yeah they must have done something really controversial, like, I don't know, had their mouths sewn up to each other's arseholes or something. They've got a big fan following who all rush out and buy it in the first week, but it's one of those ones that just drops out after that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no one saw that coming. No. <laughs> But they they didn't see much coming either. <laughs> yeah, so all the one intestine posters are down in girls' bedrooms, but you know, replacing them, Fred Westlife. <laughs> Granny wants your spunk. I mean, th- that's going to cause problems, isn't it? I don't think Tony Blackburn would want to announce their name, for example. Yeah, I think they'll either they'll call it Granny wants your or just Granny. Granny. Yeah, 
Or Tony Blackman yeah. might say, a group who choose to call themselves Granny wants your spunk. Like he did with the dead Kennedys. <laughs> yeah, like admonishing the, the act while yeah. nursing them. Yeah, yeah. Granny wants your spunk, what will they sound like? I've got a sort of um, mid or early 90s rave, almost sort of drum and bass rave thing about <laughs> yeah. it, you know what I mean? Yeah. A bit like, you know, Charlie Says, SL2 on a ragger tip, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know? Tony Blackburn's got a yeah. cheek anyway, considering his name, with its sinister echoes of uh, racist immolation. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, Pop Craze Youngsters, this episode takes us all the way back to December the 25th, 1976 and yes it's another one of those specials where top of the pops dominates christmas afternoon i used to love these didn't you yeah i mean it was a a bone of contention a wishbone of contention if you will very um, good uh in my house on christmas day because my um sort of uh middle-aged or elderly uh, aunts and uncles really disapproved of having the tv on at all um (sighs) And uh, maybe my granddad was okay with you know, Morecambe and Wise a bit later on in the in the evening or something. Mm. Um, they would insist on having the Queen's speech on, but Ugh. yeah, but but actually, um, me having top of the pops was, and it always seemed to to happen just when my mum was ready to serve up dinner, and it's yeah, you know, oh, and I was sitting there going, oh, come on, can't can't it wait? I'll come and eat my food later. I know, and we didn't have microwaves in those days, obviously, so I would just have to eat it cold. But yeah, it was it was um, it was always. Well, so a you actually left the table to watch Top of the Pops. It was more that I probably refused to come to the table in the first place. I'd be sat oh, Simon. I'd, I'd be sat really close to the telly on the carpet, just like not wanting to budge, you know. On a puff, or did you uh, did you lie down on the floor no, and on, eat on the like carpet? That? And I'd I'd have to be dragged in the manner of you know when when a dog's trying to wipe its ass on the carpet, it sort of drags <laughs> it. Up. They'd be sort of like almost physically dragging me along the carpet like that. Oh man! Yeah, or Gary Lineker. <laughs> <laughs> in his uh, second most famous World Cup yeah, moment. Yeah. Exactly. So, Taylor, can you actually remember this episode? I can. I don't remember it particularly, but I there's a, a video in this that's from the previous year, no yeah. spoilers, which I could clearly remember seeing on the telly uh, and would probably have been too young to see when it was out. So... Uh, this sort of might solve a mystery in that respect. Ooh. This may be where I first saw it. I must have lost the battle this year because I don't remember seeing it. Yeah. You know, in fact, there, there are songs on this which I've only learned of through chart music. Right. Well, there's there's one song on this which is uh, a, a, a sort of a creepy blank in the memory of everyone who lived through this period, mm. I've discovered. Right. Uh, a massive number one, which even some of Britain's foremost pop historians... Uh, who are in their 50s, have no memory of whatsoever. Mm. Of course, the main thing about uh, this Christmas episode of Top of the Pops is that we're we're only going to see the first part of it. They've split it up into two separate shows. Oh, right. uh, One on Christmas Day, one on Boxing Day. So normally this would be the absolute winner's circle, would be nothing but number ones. But there are a lot of tunes here that, that, that didn't make it to number one and in certain cases got nowhere near. I was quite shocked that... One in particular didn't get anywhere near number one. I wonder if uh, that's what happened with my family then. They must have fobbed me off and said, oh, you can watch the one tomorrow. But then on Boxing Ooh. Day, they'd have, like, you know, uh, reneged on that promise and whisked me off to see some relatives or something. Ooh. That sounds about right. I think Fucking this parents. was the year my dad made me a toy fort Ooh. because we didn't have any money because we'd just moved house. Uh, and thank God... I didn't do that little kid thing of saying, 
what the fuck is this? <laughs> why, why doesn't it have a brand name on it? I yeah. hate you. If I wasn't four and too feeble, I'd smash this over your fucking head. You know, <laughs> like like a modern kid. Yeah. Never seen an unboxing video of this. Therefore, <laughs> fuck this gift and fuck you. Well, it's true, isn't it? <laughs> So, what's in the news today? Well, the Queen and her mad family go to a church and then she says something on the telly. The Pope says something peace A new volcano has gone off in Zaire. Five members of the Metropolitan Police anti-porn squad have just been jailed for taking backhanders off smut peddlers in Soho. No way. Yes, yes. A mini-budget by Dennis Healy has ordered a severe cutback on cigarette production until New Year's Eve, leading to a fag famine across the country. Oh, man, that would have been that would have been absolute crisis <laughs> at Christmas round our house. Angela Rippard has been named the best-dressed woman in Britain, but the big news is Santa's been. <laughs> what did you get, Simon? I'll tell you what um, I, I might have got is, is that QPR top that I mentioned before. Oh. I was, yeah, I was going through my QPR phase. Um, and the way I can kind of pinpoint this is that we just moved house. Uh, I, I actually asked my mum the other day because I, I wanted to get my facts right on this. We mm. just moved house uh, before Christmas 76. Uh, uh, we'd moved, we'd left the, um, the house with the maggots that fell in through the ceiling uh. And, uh, and where I, where I thought I saw ghosts and all that, that one. Uh, and um, and we moved to uh, Porth Kerry Road, which was where all the cool kids at school lived. So I felt Ooh. like I kind of you know somehow reached the top table. It was a bit of a nicer place. It had a um, a, 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 a little a little garden front and back instead of a yard. The Laurel Canyon of Barrett. Yeah, yeah, and it had its own front door rather than sharing with another flat. So that was nice. Oh Even man, was, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I've got photos of me from that time um, with my friend Suzanne who lived down the street, and I'm wearing um, that QPR top with the ridiculously long sleeves that made me look like Johnny <laughs> Rotten. Um, but I'm also wearing Suzanne's mum's um, discarded clothes. So I'm basically in right. drag. I'm like Stan Bowles <laughs> or or Jerry Francis, but in drag. Um, I've got wow. I've got a woman's wig on, and I've got some kind of floral smock dress over it, and I've got like um, uh, red and white stripy stockings and pointy shoes and flared jeans. Good and Lord. I look a right state, but but yeah, um, that is from that street, and I'm wearing a QPR top, so I reckon that's probably my Christmas nice. present. Why? Why are you dressed up like that? Well, cause QPR because QPR was cool punk. at the time. <laughs> no, I don't know, because we were bored and we didn't have like um, all these modern computer games that kids these days have. Yes. Always looking at their bloody phones, etc. Yeah, et we made his own yeah. fun in them days. Yeah, made his own fun, yeah, yeah, yeah with, with wigs and dresses. Yeah. And that, that set me up nicely for life, really. This, I think this was the year I got my first Sabutio set. Ah, yeah, yeah. Sabutio World Cup Edition. I was a couple of years later with Sabutio, but when I got into yeah. it, I really got into it. Yeah. 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 Well, for the first time, I didn't really that much, uh, simply because I had absolutely nowhere to, to play it. Yeah. It was a World Cup edition. I remember it was like on two layers and it had three teams in it. It had West Germany, Holland and England, which I didn't understand because it was World Cup. Yeah, and, England. You know, what the fuck are England doing in the World yeah, Cup? Yeah, 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 England didn't do World Cups in the 70s. And it really pissed me off that it, it was their England home kit. Because it was practically the same as West Germany, except mm. for the shorts were blue. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, a lot of it got snapped. It had floodlights and everything, and I think everything got broke pretty early on. 
because there was no room to play it. And I, I couldn't take it to me non on grandpa's because it was too big to lay out. In any case, their carpet was really fluffy. So it was like Sunday football. So in the end, I had to get my uh, striker uh, out. Yeah. Um, Is that the one where you push their heads down? Yes. I just pretended that my league was the uh, the NASL and they were all playing on AstroTurf on smaller <laughs> pitches. But the most important story in the tabloids over the past month has been punk rock, thanks to the Bill Grundy incident. Do you remember when all that happened? No, I don't. Um, I, oh. It's something I've only learned about in retrospect. I actually yeah. teach it. I, I, I teach a whole lesson to my students on yeah. this, but I've got no memory of it happening because punk didn't hit Wales until about, at least my, my bit of Wales, until about 1978. Right. To be right. honest. Because, I mean, it was, in the, it was in the papers and everything, but only if you were in... Uh, you only saw the Grundy incident if you were in London, of course. Yeah, and then it got, um, it got reported in the Daily Mirror, so anyone across the yes. country could have read about it for yeah. a couple of days. But I was sort of too young to be reading newspapers, so I, no, I had no uh, idea about all this. The Daily Mirror ran a centre spread about the menace of punk, but they saw the lighter side of it by publishing a series of punk jokes entitled Yuck, Yuck. <laughs> Seems we haven't got any Christmas crackers on us, I think, you know, I think now's the time to, uh, to bring these out. So, go on then. What is Britain's dirtiest railway station? Uh, I don't know. St. Pancras. <laughs> <laughs> Name the TV show about the spy who plays it dirty. I don't know. The man from Punkle. Oh, oh, Jesus Christ. What is pink, sickly, and has a four-letter word through it? Punk rock. Yes. Yes. <laughs> what do you call an ape with a safety pin through it? <laughs> no, no. Punky Gibbon. Right. That's fucking funny. What's the dirtiest football team in the league? They're going on this dirty tip, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Queen's Punk Rangers. That doesn't even work. That doesn't no, work. No. <laughs> what name... Do you give someone who fries rotten potatoes? Uh, no. A chip punk. What? Oh, for fuck's sake. No. no. Which TV characters make children squeal? Um, well, we know the true answers yeah, for that yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. This, this is pre you tree. <laughs> Punky and perker. <laughs> and fin- finally... How should a sex pistol be shot? Mm. Without compunction. What? Mm. <laughs> and at the bottom it says, send your punk jokes to Punk Daily Mirror EC1 PDQ. The price for the best jokes will be a sex pistols record. The worst ones <laughs> will uh. win two sex pistols records. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go the punk threat already quashed by our great media I'm just amazed to learn that there are uh, volcanoes in Zaire yeah never mind the punk thing yeah who knew that no also I'll tell you the thing about the um, the, the, the cops getting done for taking backhanders in Soho yeah mm. that was actually connected to the Oz trial in a weird way because right. um 
You know the odds trial where you know there was that sixties yeah. underground magazine, school which boy uh, issue, yeah, yeah. schoolboy issue. Charles Shaw Murray, uh, later of the mm. NME, and a bunch of nineteen-year-olds uh, ran. Uh, they basically took control of uh, um, th- that that publication Oz for one issue, and it yeah. included a pornographic Rupert the Bear cartoon. Yes. Uh, and there was a massive legal, it sort of caused celebra and all that. But um, apparently, the the real reason why the establishment, why why the cops um, uh, made a, a real spectacle of it, made an example. Of Oz was that that was this this thing that you just mentioned that was that they secretly were taking backhanders from the pornographic industry mm. in Soho and um, they were under all sorts of pressure to do something about filth about porn and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So rather than you know actually clamp down on genuine pornographers, they saw the Oz thing as a sort of easy scapegoat. So yes, yeah. This is uh, yet more stuff that I know from teaching at BIM. Uh, is that that stuff was all common knowledge in the seventies as well. That's the, it's in the first episode of the Sweeney. I think yes. it's the first episode where Carter says to Regan, "You coming down the down the whatever later the Dirty Squad showing some of those porn films from Greek Street." Mm. It's uh, I mean, here comes Jism. <laughs> indeed, yeah, no secret. Do you think all the all the detectives sat there with like their coats over their laps, helmets over their laps, and, yes. <laughs> and of course, you know the media has still got the finger on the pulse when it comes to punk rock, as uh, as our David uh, discovered recently. Uh, we won't go into it here, but yeah, David Stubbs, Daily Express. Uh, yeah, do a Google search, see <laughs> a, see what turns up. It is amazing. He's going to be on the next episode. We'll ask him then. It is fucking corking. <laughs> On the cover of this week's NME, the best albums of the year, yeah. 1966, showing covers of Revolver, Aftermath, oh. Pet Sounds, and Otis Blue with a picture of Bob Dylan. Right. Good Lord. They've given right up on the mid-70s, haven't they, NME wow. this time? Okay. On the cover of the Radio Times is an illustration of a stained glass window of Good King Wenceslas with a lad holding the pig the wrong way round so we can see its arse. And on the cover of the TV Times, why there's a grid of celebrities dressed as Santa, including Tommy Cooper, Jimmy Tarbuck, Pat Phoenix, Huey Green, Frankie Howard, Dickie Davis, Bob Monkhouse, Peter Ustinoff, Noel Gordon and Gilbert O'Sullivan. Peter Ustinoff. I think we can see the difference between BBC and ITV right there, can't we? (laughs) Jimmy Tarbuck on one, a pig's arse on the other. In the UK, the number one single at the moment is When a Child is Born by Johnny Mathis. And the number one LP is 20 Golden Greats by Glen Campbell. Arrival by ABBA is number two. Over in the US, the number one single is Tonight's the Night, Gonna Be Alright by Rod Stewart, which is at its seventh week at number one. And the number one LP is Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. It's 11th week at number one. Well played, America. Yeah. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day with Ragtime with Fred Harris. Then Sing Noel, 50 minutes of carols and that. Then it's Hong Kong Fuwe. Then Angela Rippon makes an appeal on behalf of television for the deaf. CFAX, basically, I think. After an hour-long Christmas morning service, Rod Hull and Emu sing a Christmas song with Rolf Harris. Well, you know. Rod Hall does that. Emu doesn't sing. He just attacks. 
just opens his mouth and turns yeah. its head from side to side. Then it's Four Clowns, the 1970 compilation of films by Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chase, and they've just finished Holiday on Ice, Ice Pantomime. Ooh. Out of all that stuff, I'd have been the most into Hong Kong Fooey. I fucking yeah, loved Hong man. Kong Fooey. Also, yeah. I think the telephonist from Hong Kong Fooey was, along with Madame Cholet, um, the first person I had a crush Ooh. on. It was, it was basically the telephonist from Hong Kong Fooey, Madame Cholet from the Wombles, and Agnetha, or uh, Agnetha, as I probably would have said from ABBA, were my first three crushes. Yeah. A real-life human being. Well, yeah, well yeah, you've got to throw one of them in there, you know. <laughs> as opposed to the telephonist who was a real dilf, a drawing I'd like to fuck. <laughs> BBC Two begins with Reflections on Christmas Day, followed by The Mystery of King Arthur and His Round Table in Horizon, Play Away, and they're currently half an hour into carols from King's College, Cambridge. Ugh. Yeah. ITV kicks off with carols from Durham Cathedral with Roy Detrice. Fucking all this carol shit. What's going on? I wonder. <laughs> then The Legend of the Christmas Messenger, featuring the voices of Richard Chamberlain, Leo McKern and David Essex, followed by another Christmas morning service from Chichester. Now they've got all the religious rubbish out the way for another year. They pile over to the Harrogate General Hospital, where Jimmy Tarbuck spends half an hour bothering the patients. Then it's a Rex Harrison film, Doctor Doolittle. They're just about to start Christmas Supersonic, a charity performance at Drury Lane, which, according to the TV Times, is an exciting rock bonanza hosted by Russell Harter and new Avenger Joanna Lumley, and features John Miles. Guys and Dolls, Linda Lewis, Mark Bolan, and Gary Glitter. I want to see with, that. With Princess Margaret looking on in the royal box. How dare ITV run that up against Top of the Pops? Yeah, I was going to say, when, when have they scheduled that for in this pre-video <laughs> era? It's disgusting, isn't it? <sighs> so they could have just put some swap, swapped it with some of the fucking carols or something. Fuck ITV. Well, they used to have a truce, didn't they, that, like, BBC wouldn't bother to put anything good up against Coronation Street and mm. so on, you know. So you'd think yeah. they would have, you know, come on. They kept that up in the late 90s when they put late 90s Top of the Pops up against Coronation Street. Yeah, well, it, it was always the sign that you were running something in. All right, then, pop crazy youngsters. It's time to go way back to Christmas Day 1976. Don't forget, we may cope down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more than we have. On this Christmas Day, it's welcome to a rather special edition of Top of the Pops, and it's a Merry Christmas from me. And it's a very Merry Christmas from me. It's ten minutes past two on Saturday, December the 25th, 1976, and the nation is greeted by the sight of a massive roast turkey in the foreground and a weird mirror effect of the pop-crazed youngsters standing about in the background. In between are your hosts, Noel Edmonds and Dave Lee Travis. Edmund is currently at the very toppermost of the poppermost, doing the Radio 1 breakfast show, and he's nearly three months into presenting Swap Shop. Travis is currently hosting It's DLT OK from half past three in the afternoon to six o'clock during weekdays. 
but he's already got his eye on Noel's breakfasty throne. Mm. Is that it's DLT okay question mark? Or is it no. just a no? It's just a statement, isn't it? Exclamation mark! Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no question about it. It is DLT. Yeah, your your consent is not required. They hated each other, these two. Apparently, yes, they did. Uh, which makes it kind of fascinating viewing once you know that. You know, especially because they they've got to act all kind of jovial with each other and trade yeah. bants back and forth. Yes. It's, yeah. Yeah. It makes it kind of oddly fascinating. In a gruesome way. Before we pile in any further on, on Mr. Travis, who we haven't had for quite a while, and it's always a pleasure to see him passing by, isn't it, on uh, on chart music. Um, the, 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 the new thing I want to, the new discoverer I want to add, is that when you're in Photoshop and you write DLT in lowercase in a certain font, it actually looks like the word clit. <laughs> oh, Christ. Yeah, I found that out the other night. Yeah, that's like my mate Clint when he tried yeah, to. Graf- I remember Clint. Yes. Yeah, he tried to graffiti his name on a wall at school in capitals and yeah. put the L a bit too close to the no. I. And you, I think we school boy guess error. What happened next? Yes, and it's like the um, the hairdressers in Camden that uh, must have spent a lot of money on their very fancy gold and mirrored sign that said flickers. And the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I think the, 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 the key difference between the two you c- can be seen immediately by their attire for this. You know, Edmonds has, has made an effort, hasn't he? Yeah, because I, I can they... imagine Noel Edmonds being the person who would wear a, a three-piece Rackham suit to Christmas dinner. Well, this is it, right? Cause they and are... expect everyone else to as well. Because they, they are uh, both the most 70s men I can imagine. Because people say yes. that 1976 is the most 70s year of the 70s. I mean, other people say 1973 was. But anyway, yes. right. But if I think of 70s men, I, I literally picture these two. And they mm. are sort of two different archetypes. Because you've got DLT with that wing-collared shirt. It's open to the mm. sternum, obviously. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly what I've written That's down how here. he rolls, right? Yes. But then you've got Edmonds with an equally big collar, but his collar yes. is done up. It's neatly fastened with a neatly tied kipper tie. Yes. Yeah, he's wearing yes. the same suit that he always wears. Yes. It's like he's only got one. Or more likely, he's got a wardrobe with about 40 in that are all exactly the same. Like Oh, Alfred like in nine and a half weeks. I, I wouldn't <laughs> know, Al. Or Einstein, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Oh God! Can you imagine Noel Edmonds in nine and a half weeks? <laughs> who would he, who would be, who would be the Kim Bassinger? Mike Smith. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They're in front of a turkey, which seems to exist on a different plane. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just forced perspective, um, or uh, whether it's you know, and it's actually in the same room as them. Uh, or, but somebody thought it was a good idea to have it really massive in the foreground, yeah. like Saturn, <laughs> with them as orbiting moons, um, or whether it's actually <laughs> overlaid, in which case that's quite the technological marvel, because... No, it's there, yeah. it's there. Is it there? Yeah, oh, that's yeah, right, he touches because, it. That's right, because, he, yes, he touches it later, of course. Yes, yeah. 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 It's a massive took it. You can imagine Travis wrestling that to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> And shouting at Edmonds to take its head off with that axe quickly. Yeah. <laughs> While Bates wanks a pig in the background. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, right? Because they're, they're oddly distant from the camera. There must have been um, a, a way they could have just pulled the camera back a bit so that, you know, the, the turkey's in front of them. But it's not so dramatically foregrounded. Uh, and, you know, it's 
It is. It's, it's almost like uh, when when you're watching a film and somebody opens a drawer and there's a pistol in it, and you know the mm. the, the camera just lingers on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically, you know, they are. Um, backgrounded to what is essentially a turkey murder scene up close you know yes. that the, the charred carcass of a sentient being looming up at us so <laughs> uh, and also not just the turkey as well as the turkey there's this unidentified brown slab at the bottom left of the yes. picture probably just some meat capital s capital m yes. you know? like not not from any not from any particular animal on the phylogenetic tree but a sort of no. coagulated mass of sweepings from the abattoir yeah. floor held together <laughs> yeah. by gelatin of multi- multiple provenance and, and heated for an hour at what was then of course called regulo mark 5 yes. in um, probably probably in a british gas cookability oven as uh, i mm. remember you mentioned on yes. a previous episode um, advertised by none other than noel edmonds himself on, on those yes. british gas roadshow ads the slag yeah. <laughs> yeah it's but it's filmed as though the bbc were going to put this out in 3d Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only surprise is that DLT even down to the red and the green in the in the visuals. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He should have leapt forward and pointed right into the camera. Are you ready? (laughs) Oh, Travis in three D round about this time, and that would have been fucking terrifying. Oh, individual beard hairs extending further than others. People would be running into their Christmas trees in terror, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like some of his beard is closer to you than other bits. Uh, yeah. But then behind, they've got, like on a blue screen, they've got the studio feed of the audience, yes. which yes. kind of, it, it's a sort of a technological marvel, but it doesn't really do them any favours, as, as, we'll, as we'll see. No, yeah. and at first it's confusing, because uh, it's not immediately apparent that what we're going to see is... Um, a compendium of clips rather than an actual show, if you know what I mean. So, no. so you, you've got that thing where it's almost like a sort of picture frame around um, the audience, and it's just some audience from some time. It turns out, yeah. you know, it's not they're not there. But but at first you don't know that, so it's it's all really odd. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it does have the air of the clip show about it, doesn't it? Mm. A bit of a parsimonious thing for the BBC to be doing because you know they we, we've seen them push the boat out a little bit in previous episodes. Yeah, but talking about like making an effort i mean travis and edmonds are the most slapdash and unprofessional and undescripted i think we've ever seen them yeah i mean yeah it's it's only christmas day you know it's only gonna be 25 million viewers for fuck's sake you know yeah Um, yeah that's what it's weird isn't it yeah and it's all so first thing we hear is cue dave right from the gallery you could hear yes. it coming through someone's earpiece or through something. And I don't know if that's sloppiness on the part of the BBC for repeat, which is mm. what we're watching here, uh, or mm. if it went out at the time like that, you know, on yeah. the logic that everyone will be pissed, as with the technicians yes, probably. it doesn't matter. But, yeah, it's like uh, people talk about Noel as the supremely professional broadcaster. Exactly, yes. But every time we ever see him, uh, he looks like a rank amateur, you know. Mm. I don't know. I didn't get that from this, but all right, carry on. Well, at the start of this, they say, uh, and I think they're trying to do the world's most half-assed and poorly thought-out to Ronnie's reference, right? Mm. Where uh, I think Travis says, you know, Merry Christmas or something. And then Noel Evans says, and it's a very Merry Christmas from me. But he yes. kind of stutters and pauses and kind of, it's, it sounds like he's just too shit to de- deliver the line. Um, yeah. 
he says, stuttering halfway through his own line. Um, <laughs> and it, well, they couldn't be bothered to do a second take, you know. There we are. Welcome to yeah. the Top of the Pops Christmas Spectacular. <laughs> Have a good time. And then it comes back after the contents yeah. page where they tell you who's going yeah. to be on. And yeah, the montage of the acts on today over, of course, CCS's version of Whole Lot of Love. Yeah, and DLT is holding up one finger, like, as if to say, wait for it, and looking off camera for his cue. And Noel has his eyes closed and his chin resting on his hand. And you think it's just unprofessional, but it turns out they, they sort of hold it a bit too long, and it turns out it's a bit. They're doing a bit, right? Mm. But it's a bit that has no point and no humorous content at all, no. right? It's, Are you uh, talking about the bit where DLT is staring into space? Yes. Yeah, well, this bit really creeped me out. So he's kind of <laughs> pretending, he's pretending to zone out. Yeah. And it's it's a rare occasion when DLT isn't gurning or mugging. Yes. Um, so it's a rare glimpse of what a weird-looking man he is when his face is at rest. <laughs> resting Travis' face. Yeah, resting cunt face. Right, his <laughs> fucking his stupid slab of a face. Right. If basically, if you were in a remote area and you walked into a rural pub that was frequented <laughs> only by farmers, like like something out of Straw Dogs or uh, American Werewolf in London, yeah. and and you were stood at the bar and you glanced to your right and you saw that face. Doing that expression, yeah, uh, you would leave instantly. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Half finished vodka and orange on the bar top. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's the, it's that great British delusion that was shared by most of the old time Radio One DJs that you don't have to write or think of jokes, right? No, you just do something unusual or say something unusual, and it automatically will be crazy and funny. You know, yeah. and in fact, it's the opposite of wit, right? And rather than a considered and logical response to the madness around you, it's like a toddler's idea of humour, right? You know, if you talk to a toddler and you say, "Should we go to the swimming pool?" and they go, "No, let's go to the pool swimming," ha! <laughs> and they think that's a joke because when yeah. humour happens in front of them, all they understand about it conceptually. Uh, is that there's? It's like a disruption in the order of things. So when yeah. they try and make a joke, they just disrupt the order of things and think that that will equal humour. That's what these cunts are like in relation to the goon show. Appearance-wise, uh, no point talking about Edmonds. He looks exactly the same as always. Yeah. Uh, Travis, though, he, he, I think he's trying to do something with his hair, isn't he? You know, because it's all—it's all—it's all a bit. It's the usual—it's the usual living Nasher badge look. Yeah. But um, but it's it's kind of starting to square off a bit round the back and the sides, so he's starting to look like a hairy chess piece. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it just drenched in Cossack to try and yeah. try and keep it in check? Because on the cover of the Top of the Pops 1977 annual, which I have in front of me, yeah, uh, you know. Annuals, pop annuals are usually, you know, a good indicator of the pecking order of pop. Uh, and, of course, because it's the top of the pops one, it's uh, it's little round uh, inset pictures of Edmonds, Blackburn, Savile and Travis. Mm. But the one with Travis is, uh, because his hair's so dark and it's on a black background and the print has not come out, it makes him look like his, his hair is a absolutely perfectly circled afro. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes him look like an angry bird. 
<laughs> like he's, he's, he's just about to be launched into uh, Noel's house and, and going to bring it crashing down. <laughs> there is one pop star on the cover. 1977, who do you think it would be? A male singer? 77. David Essex? Exactly. Yeah. Yes, get in. Yeah, featuring David Essex, Steve Harley, Rod Stewart and David Bowie. Nice. So there, and I've also got the Supersonic Annual, and it just goes to show what a shitty state pop music's in. Uh, because on the cover of that, again, David Essex, the Bay City Rollers, who were well past their sell-by date by yeah. late 1976. Jan out of Kenner, and right in the middle, Mike Mansfield in a splendid silvery quiffy bouffant. Mm. Yes. Is he leaning over the desk and pointing? <laughs> no, he's he's looking away as if he can't bear to look at the state of pop in, in late 1976. Well, whose fault is that? Yes, yeah. well, exactly, yes. Yes, a very Merry Christmas to you. You've got a lot of hits coming up in the programme. And uh, Dave, Dave, Dave? Oh, Slick and Forever and Ever. Dave. discuss Slick in Chart Music's 18 and 29 and just to remind you this was a cover of a song written by Bill Martin and Phil Coulter who penned Remember, Shangaline, Summer Love Sensation and Saturday Night for the Bay City Rollers and the song originally appeared on the band Kenny's 1975 LP The Sound of Super K. Originally offered to the Rollers as a follow-up to Give a Little Love but they knocked it back as they wanted to be a bit more progressive than ever and Coulter and Martin parted company with the Rollers, looked for a new band to lob the songs at, and uh, it was Midge and his chums in their uh, in their baseball gear. Yeah, Slick are probably the first band we've covered in full in chart music, <laughs> because fucking hell, man, this is a bad start to a Christmas top of the pops. Yeah, if you've had your Christmas dinner already, this is going to bring on the food coma pretty early, isn't it? Well, it's quite a kind of downbeat song, isn't it? It's uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of baroque glam pop, and you know, it was the sort of the the uh, BCR team trying to have another shot at it under a different guise, the sort of Gotham City yeah. Rollers, really, isn't it? And um, yes, and, and uh, what what I what I thought about this song, and I'm I'm starting to change my mind, is that it's too slow. Um, mm. It's actually a good song. But but I I thought it was too slow until I saw this clip at the very end. All the audience have got their arms around each other's waist and they're kind of swaying in unison. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe they've got it just right here. Mm. Midge Ewer is, is is the weird thing about this for me because Oof, when, as always when Ultravox happened, I didn't know that. I mean, I read in Smash Hits that it'd been in Slick, but I'm like, who? You know. Because, yeah. you know, 1976, from the perspective of 1980 or 81, might as well have been 100 years ago, uh, yes. if you are a kid at the time. And, and um, he's he's like he's Pop's ultimate kind of chancer. Pop's biggest mm. chan- biggest carpetbagger. He's not not so much the Zelig of Pop as the Steve Claridge. This kind of this kind of this kind of journeyman who can turn up anywhere and do a job for you, yeah. or maybe in, in managerial terms, the Neil Warnock or something like that. Um, yes. So 
you know, obviously he did this, this kind of late, very late glam pop, and then he was in the kind of punk new wave thing with the rich kids, and then in the new romantic thing with Ultravox. Yeah. And I, I don't know if there's a if there's a comparable figure. I mean, you've got all. He's, a, a, he's now a drill artist now, isn't he? Or something <laughs> like that. But I, I suppose you, you've got um, those kind of chances from the '60s, like you know Shane yeah. Fenton or Paul Gads, who had another crack at it. But yeah. Um, but to do it three times, that's, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know if anyone else has done that. It's quite remarkable. And, and of course, you know, this is round about the time that, um, well, I mean, this, you know, this this was a, a, a number one in February, mm. which by December would have been oh, it's forever you know, ago, a long, it? long time Forever ago. and ever ago, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it's like, oh, oh hello, remember us, you liked us once. Yeah, and like, I, I suppose, you know, he's, he's trying to look like, he looks, I think I mentioned last time, a sort of pinched, starved James Dean. And maybe, yes. um, com, you know, combined with that basic role as sound, it could almost fool people, um, you know, sort of young and particularly female audience at times, at the time, into thinking he's some kind of heartthrob. But by December, yeah. they've seen enough photos of him, probably probably think actually you know maybe yeah. not <laughs> maybe he's not the one yeah taylor do you remember right when we were at melody maker um carol clerk the the news editor playing pranks on midure prank calling him do you remember this oh god that rings a bell no right it was so i don't know why carol uh, carol's a legend uh, for anyone who's listening doesn't know she was this kind of long-serving news editor who'd, who'd been there way way before us and was just basically the the sort of spirit of the paper and the most rock and roll person at the paper mm. but um <laughs> for some reason I, and i don't know why but she she hated mid year and i don't know why <laughs> well there must i yeah all right fine but there must have been some kind of personal grudge uh she used to uh, ring him up or sometimes get other people on her behalf to ring him up and prank call him and he started like he started answering the phone pretending to be his own pa <laughs> So <laughs> she she ring up and he and, and she put him on an answer phone and and he go he's no in <laughs> he sounded really panicked you know <laughs> but of course the added poignancy of this performance is that Midge is standing up there doing his already dated shtick just thinking I could have said shit on uh, on the Today Show at Bill Grundy yeah. yeah that could have been yeah. me yeah. there he is Christ. playing his Gibson Marauder appropriately mm. enough the Great failure of the Gibson brand. A really yeah. terrible late 70s guitar. Whereas the bassist has the, considering the time period, unfortunately named Gibson Ripper bass, uh, which is really <laughs> good. And he never wrote uh, Do They Know It's Christmas. So I'm on his side here. He's my mm. favourite. And the, <laughs> the, the poor, balding keyboard player trying to look smug as he sinks into history's mire. Um, imagine if you're in a band and mid-year was the talented one. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. They look. They, what do they look haunted? I mean, yeah. they look horrible as well. That's the thing. They're supposed to be like a teen idol band. This is one yeah. slick that won't have claimed too many birds. I wouldn't <laughs> have thought. They're so desperate to be pop heroes yeah. that they've rolled their dignity into a ball and pissed on it. But they. <laughs> have got nothing to offer, right? And, I mean, in those days, teen idols weren't buffed and tanned and groomed, right? Because nobody was in those days. Mm. Um, So you couldn't just train to be a pin-up in the gym and the beauty salon, right? You had to communicate something, and it had to be either a kind of mystique, an otherworldly allure, or a sort of 
like a puppy dog boyishness or whatever it was the mm. Bay City Rollers had, yeah. you know, which is harder to pin down. I mean, the Bay City Rollers looked like unhealthy Scottish whelps who lived on frozen beef burgers and <laughs> iron steaks. brew. Yeah, but so does Slick, right? But the, I guess the Rollers looked natural and exuded a kind of youthful energy, right, which Slick yeah. absolutely do not. And the reason no. why is because they're caught between their shameless lust for glory and this sort of lingering, serious music fan guilt complex. Yeah. Because um, they're obviously like proper musicians and, you know, they sort of want to be on the old grey whistle test. And so they've... Yeah. It means they they try to appear a bit classier and a bit more thought out, and they've given themselves this unified image, like this distant hint of Roxy music or whatever, you know. And yeah. it just fucks everything up because it means they're neither one thing nor the other. Yeah. Um. So like, you can get yourself a freak number one by making a record that sounds exactly like the Rollers, but mm. with a gimmicky twist, right? In this case, monk rock. But yes. you can't. <laughs> You can't build a fan base like that. No. Uh, so nobody cared about yeah. Slick. Nobody actually cared about them. No. So there's nothing to care about. And, you know, it's not just a formula thing, creating teeny bop idols, you know. It can be hit and miss, yeah. but generally there are certain rules that you have to observe. Um, and if you just... But 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 it's not just a formula, and if you just follow what you think is the formula, you've got less chance of hitting the jackpot than if you just go nuts, you know, and just yeah. put together a group with Kenneth Kendall in it <laughs> and Prince Monolulu, you know. Who knows? You might just get lucky. But yeah, if you're as calculated as this and your heart's not in it, uh, people can tell. Kids can yeah, tell. Yeah, because Midge is coming off here as the as the. Um well, he wants to be the really moody lad who you see through the windows of the coffee bar, um, so absorbed in his thoughts that he's not distracted by the pinball machine that's right up to his head, uh, <laughs> wishing he could afford a motorbike to kill himself on. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, he isn't that. And that's no. the thing. What these people don't understand is the weird interplay between artifice and uh, being natural. Mm. And you have to get that balance right. Um if you're going to be a teen idol. And it's it's not as simple as it looks. It really isn't. No, and you've got to feel sorry for them here because they're, they're obviously thinking, oh, right, okay, so we're, we're back on top of the pops again for the first time in months. People will remember us. And, oh, yeah, you're on because you've got to do that song that, that was number one ages ago that nobody particularly cares about now. Yeah. You know, the, the one that sounds like if the cast of the Horror Bags adverts had a wedding do, <laughs> this would be the first song they dance to. <laughs> You know, if Captain Peacock got married to a rubber bat. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's a Half Man Half Biscuit song from a couple of years ago that mm. ends with a string of non-sequiturs, their last one of which is Midgeur looks like a milk thief. And <laughs> not, not only does he, but spiritually, that's kind of what he is, you know. Mm. And the only positive thing I can say about this I make sure I watch all of these Top of the Popsies once, just once, when yeah. I'm completely out of my head and yeah. see what they sound like in that state. Nice. Um, and see, look at the commitment, pop craze youngsters. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. And incredibly, this one actually sounded great when ripped to the tits. Um, ah, chunky as all fuck. But yeah, but it's great to be straight. Yeah. <laughs> 
I do think it's a good song, but ultimately, you know, it's negligible in terms of its impact. And as Taylor says, uh, you know, lost in the mire of history, even by December of this year, of, you know. But yeah, Midge York could have been the lead singer of the Sex Pistols. And if, if so, I believe we'd still be wearing flares today <laughs> with our hair down to our fucking ankles. <laughs> So, forever and ever, got to number one for one week in February of this year, knocking Mamma Mia off the top spot, and it was usurped by December 63 by the Four Seasons. The follow-up, Requiem, only got to number 24 in May of this year, and they were done, and they split up in 1977. Christmas top of the box, slicking a big number one sound. Talking to number one, Elton John made his very first number one in 1976, together with the lovely Kiki Dick. Will you pay attention, please? What is the matter with you? I'm doing my Christmas flower arrangements. This is flower arrangements? That's rubbish. This is a work of art, this is. Work of art? Yeah, yeah. I'm not breaking my art. <laughs> Travis finally wakes up, and while Edmunds fucks about with a Christmas wreath for some reason... Well, Noel's messing around with these sprigs of holly, isn't he, his wreath, and, and, and DLT gets cross and grabs at it, yes. and, and the whole thing turns out to just be a tortured setup for Noel to say, don't go breaking my art. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, oh. he says, he says this, is, this is a work of art, this is, and mm. uh, Travis snaps a bit off, and he says, oh, yeah. don't go breaking my art, <laughs> and... Uh, while this is happening, on the screen in the background, you see Slick uh, sort of ambling off stage. Yes. And the crowd going quiet. And yes. it's weirdly deflating. They can't help but fuck about with bits of wood. Give them something to play with and break. That'll do. Yeah. The song they introduce is Don't Go Breaking My Heart <laughs> by Elton John and Kiki D. We've already covered Reg Dwight in chart music number 13. And by 1976, he's established himself as one of the highest earners in Popland, with four number one LPs and 16 top 40 hits, eight of which made the top 10. However, when the year began, he was still searching for a number one single over here. The nearest he got was when Daniel was held off the top spot by Metal Guru in May of 1972. This song was written as a tribute to Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell and was originally slated as a duet between Elton John and Dusty Springfield. When the latter pulled out due to illness, they turned to one of her old backing singers, good old Pauline Matthews, who was born in Bradford in 1947 and was better known as Kiki D, who we last met in Chart Music number three, Rainfall from Another Planet. Here comes Chisholm. <laughs> yeah, Released as a follow-up to his version of Pinball Wizard from the film Tommy, which got to number seven in April of 1976, it spent six weeks at number one from late July right through to the end of August. And here's another chance to see the promo video. Well, you know, this is pretty much the anthem for the for the hottest summer ever, isn't it? This cane-twirling cunt. Fucking! <laughs> I mean, I could go into the reasons why I hate him. Do you know? I, I actually um, wrote a live. I, I wrote a live review of Elton John once for the Independent on Sunday, which actually 
cause me no end of trouble. Oh, really? Because, uh, he he has some powerful friends. Oh, does uh, he in, now? Uh, in 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 the music business and the media. Let's just say that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'll go no further with that, but it caused me a certain amount of trouble. Um, I would have anyway, thought he would have taken criticism calmly and maturely. Mm. Would you? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, in that review, I tried to break it down because I thought my knee-jerk reaction of basically hating him needs to be based on something. Yes. I thought it's not good enough just to just say, oh, I hate him. I thought, I've got to, right, come on, let's, let's try and analyse this in a sober way. So I looked at all the possible reasons and... I was sort of discounting them one by one, and some of them were just things that were bullshit. Like there was that story in one of the tabloids that he had Rottweilers guarding his grounds, and he'd had their voice boxes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The sun it's got absolute, sued. absolute bollocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolute bollocks. So I was sort of crossing these things off one by one, you know, as, as legitimate reasons to dislike him. But what it came down to in the end was just the accent he sings in, the fact that he sings in that horrible mid-Atlantic. Uh, you know, pseudo-American. It's, it's the vowel sounds. It's like, goodbye, England's rolls, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. I hate it. Um, and, right, mostly it's a good thing that these days the old rules, the punk rules, mm. have melted away. You know, yeah. um, people used to talk of such and such being okay to like, and, you know, there, there were fairly strict rules on that. Yeah. And there, you, people were either one side of the line or the other. And it's good. It's a positive thing that is gone. It's a positive thing that people's view of, let's say, Sting or Phil Collins are a bit more nuanced than just, oh, you know, they're just you know, fucking horrible old dinosaurs. Mm. But in in this case, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I wish that that wall was still standing kind of wall of China tall. Yeah. I really do. Because fucking hell, this, this whole thing about him being kind of canonised as a national... Tra- I, was, I mean, I, I can't even... I was going to say, oh, at least we don't see him on TV so much anymore. Mm. Fucking hell, have you put on... Right, I was watching um, some crap on Channel 4 the other day. It was, uh, oh, I don't know, first dates or something. And, and the ad break comes on. And uh, he was in no fewer than three adverts. First of all, he's no. in the, uh, the the John Lewis ad. Right. Uh, then he's advertising Snickers, right? No. And then, yeah, and then he's advertising Nespresso machines. Why? Uh, which I think... Which I think might have been a sort of um, sub-thread of the John Lewis campaign. Right. And it's like, Jesus Christ, you know, have we not had enough of this guy? Well, he's got, he's got a film coming out next year, isn't he? Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, I mean... Uh, and he's doing his song, retirement tour. <clears throat> yeah, true enough, which is going on for like, three years or something. Yeah. Um, th- this, this song, um, yeah, you're right, it was everywhere in the summer of 76. I, I even owned 30 seconds of it. Right. Yeah. Um, thanks to Noel Edmonds because uh, I mentioned this on a previous show. True actually. text. There was True Text fourteen. Whoa. Yes. There was a, a flexi disc given away with jeans, uh, True Text jeans, uh, 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 which had Noel Edmonds introducing snippets of pop hits of the day, and this was one of them. Um, I've got to say, it's a good song. Um, yes. I'm I'm not a complete psychopath. This is a good song, mm. uh, and I do like some. I mean, I like Song for Guy a lot, for example. But this. Um, yeah, it's it's a sort of free and easy pastiche of American soul, sort mm. of Philly soul, I guess. Yeah, I've I've no reason to believe that it isn't done with with love. Um, he's a weird pop star when you look at look at him now, though. You, you watch yeah. this clip. Um, I don't think I noticed at the time that he was bald, no. or it's either it's either that, or I didn't think there was anything weird about there being a bald pop star. No. Maybe it's because he had so much else going on visually with the big glasses yes. and the you know, stack heels and the flared suit that it's just, you know, a minor detail. Mm. But you just sort of took it as a 
a fait accompli. And in in a way, um, Kiki D looks a, a, a less likely pop star. Yes. Uh, with her, she's she's got the the sensible bobbed hair of, of a new mum. Yes. Um, and and the pink dungarees of a play school presenter. Yes. Yeah. She basically she she looks like if Bill Oddie had a shave. <laughs> You know, she, she, she's not a bad singer, and she's done not some all right stuff. Do you know the song Amoureuse? Yes, by her. Um, I, I only discovered it recently. Actually, um, a friend of mine, Alexis Petridis from the Guardian, yeah. does a, a club night in Brighton called uh, um, Late Night Minicab FM, and the, and the concept of that is that they they yeah. play sort of gloopy ballads and stuff that you would normally completely discount, but when it's about 3am and you're pissed and you're coming home in a taxi and it comes on the radio, mm. it just hits you mm. with just the biggest woof of emotion possible. Yeah. And um, and Amorous is a song that he played at that. And I, uh, yeah, I thought, this is brilliant. It's like a sort of Wait great... a minute, Did, didn't we discuss yes, that? Yes, we did, previous Simon. Oh, listen, I can't help it, mate. I can't help it because... You were on that one. I don't care. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. For fuck's sake. <laughs> this is uh, this might have to be edited out. I can't have the oh, pop yeah, No, I don't mind. Substitute. I'm I'm sh- I'm 51. I'm shameless about this. Yeah, maybe I'm losing my mind a little bit. But you know, I'm it's inevitably I'm going to repeat myself. You know, unless unless I have some kind of massive document that's about 80 pages long of all my notes, and I just sort of like you know do sort of uh, control F on 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 the word Kiki. Yeah. You know, but there we go. But but the um this 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 DJ night you talk about. Do the DJs actually talk over the songs and be a bit? Brexit? No, no, not at all. No. If I've DJed it myself, I, I think I'm doing the February one. Well, you need uh, to. So. You need to have that vibe going to it. Maybe. Get to the really best bits of the song and just boom. Oh, this used to be a nice area, this did. <laughs> Changed, hasn't it? You get, no, you need another... You, you DJ and you need another bloke sat next to you in a car seat, dressed like Driver 67. Yes. And uh, give him a mic, yeah. Yes. Now, Kiki D is is a really good singer and is a better singer than Elton John. And what's more, this song is written in her range rather than his. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's quite gallant. Yeah. It means Elton is squawking horribly all the way through mm. this because it's slightly too high for him, um, yeah. where she sounds fine. Uh, yeah. But I can't really have an opinion on this song. In the same way I can't have an opinion on Kevlar it's just beyond me, you know what I mean? It's competent and it's effective, but it's like it's happening in a dimension that I don't understand or care about yeah. or feel connected to in any way. There's not really anything objectionable about it, apart from the presence of Elton John. Um, and you can hear that it's neatly put together and it's uh, extremely commercial, but it's like it's like watching juggling or something. Do you know mm. what I mean? Or a model train going round and round on a yeah. train set. You just the only pleasure or satisfaction to be had is from the smooth running of a totally predictable system. And yeah. eventually you start to long for some sort of fuck up just to make it more exciting. <laughs> or yeah. some kind of uh you know, howl of feedback or something. And it, it's never gonna happen. The yeah. only thing that really gets through to me is the way the strings move through the empty space which is good, and yeah. the promise, like the instantly betrayed promise of a bit of deeper feeling when you get to that chord change where it says, oh, nobody knows it. Uh, but then the song just flops straight back onto the track again and starts going mm. round and round. Um, yeah. And I hate their their bits of B 
business in the video, larking yeah. about. Oh, John looks well Reg Holdsworth in this, doesn't he? <laughs> he does, it's like yeah. The, it's like the better buys are having a 70s night and his wigs <laughs> come off and he's just styling it out. But this is the only visual interest in this video, really, is mm. Elton John's crazy discomfort in his yes. own piglet skin, right? Mm. He hates it. He hates being Elton John. Or at least he yeah. hates looking like Elton John. He's yeah. at that stage of boldness where nowadays every man in the world would shave his head, right? Because you yeah. haven't got a patch or a recedence or it, no, the game's up. You don't have hair anymore. Yeah, you've just got a bit of bit of fluff. Um, yeah. but he's got it there. And but remember, there's only two bold men in the world in, in 1976. Yeah, so no, your Brin is still hanging about, and um, Tally Savalas, right? Both sexes. Yeah, who, who gets mentioned in a song that's coming up in a roundabout way. Yes. Yeah. But the thing is, he's got this terrible storm in his brain, right? He's got this complex self-image where he's obsessively vain, but he also makes a point of wearing horrendously tasteless clothes, like mm. above and beyond the standards of 1976, you know? Yes. And making himself look really foolish. Um and that's always a worrying combination, like a bit of a red flag. He's not just trying to look weird, he's actively trying to make himself look stupid, while yeah. at the same time being very self-regarding and very fussy. And something yeah. isn't right there. You know, anyone, anyone would think he was hiding something. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I remember this video being on all the time when I was young, and I didn't like it then because, to me, it seemed then that pop music took place either in... Uh, a distant universe of flashing lights and man-made fibres and it sounded uh, glossy and unearthly. Or it happened in grey utilitarian old grey whistle test rooms which looked like the execution chamber at Sing Sing, um, Mm. like this. In which case it would sound heavy and grown up and nonsensical. Uh, but here you've got this couple of daft twats arsing about, uh, but they're in this dreary old studio. It's a bit like Gladys Pugh's studio in Heidi High, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it has all the raw excitement of that too. <laughs> it just seemed like the, the a, a confusing worst of both worlds, you know. Yeah. Now, come on, I want to say something here, which is, first of all, I've just been thinking, and I've, I've realised that um, I'm probably in no position to have a go at anyone else for handling baldness in a weird way using distraction tactics. Right. That's the first thing to say. Yeah. Right, in Elton John's uh, defence. And and also, I, I think, rather than even sounding like I'm grudgingly admitting that it's a good record, I think you've kind of got to say it's a brilliant record. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's insanely catchy. Yes. Um, if, we've all heard it a million times, but I, yeah. I would venture that if we'd heard it for the first time, this morning, it would be stuck in our heads mm. all day and yeah. all week. Um, and it's just the people doing it are the only off-putting thing. But if it was by Billy Preston and Cyrita, it would just... I'd, I'd be playing it all the time, do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Something like that, or I don't know, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, or whoever, it, you know, any yeah. other duet. And yet, when you haven't heard it for a bit, you never think about it, because there's not really anything mm. to it, right? But this is why I maintain that Elton John was some kind of evil genius. Because yeah. like last time he turned up on this podcast, I was on it, and it was some song that no one even remembers now, right? And I watched it, and I yeah. thought, yeah, whatever. And then Old time it, love, yeah. And it was in my head for about a week, despite having hardly any melody to speak of. So 
here we are with one of his greatest hits, right? And I don't see any particular interest or value in it, and it's been in my head for days. And that takes a real wanker, you know, like a real, <laughs> a really talented bore. Like if you can write a song that all it does is block out people's other thoughts <laughs> or, <laughs> or block out other more enjoyable songs which could have been in their head you know it just do you like your other thoughts though taylor <laughs> no but but i like them more than elton john's presence <laughs> in my brain i mean it's this song just lies in your head like like musical sandbags just getting in the way do you know what i mean but uh, what a life that is the all that undeniable talent which Elton John had, and all you build with it is like polystyrene cubes to just stack up in somebody else's path, you know. Uh, I like Rocket Man though. No, but this this song to me, it's you know, it, it's mine in a vein that's uh, being chipped up round about this time, of you know British people having a go at the at the soul funk thing, and uh, you know the old sailor himself, you know he he'd have success with it, but this. This yeah. really pulls it off for me. I mean, particularly as an eight-year-old, I, I wouldn't know no difference. I wasn't old enough to be a snob about it just yet. That would be about nine, I suppose. Mm. But to me, you know, I mean, there's one song that we're going to cover in a bit, and people see that as the definitive single of 1976 for, for many good reasons. But yeah. for me, it's this one. I mean, fucking mm. hell, man. If you, if you put this song on and chucked a load of ladybirds at my face for three minutes. I would be <laughs> right in the middle of 1976, I'm telling you. I, th- I, I sort of agree, and I, I think in some ways it's because they present an aspirational view of adulthood because mm. they come across as the, the, they, they are the popular people, they're the fun yes. people, they're the people having a good time. Exactly, yeah. Right, in this song. And, and yeah, you, you sort of think, well, I'd rather be that guy than, well, certainly the mid-year in... <laughs> Fucking forever and ever by Slick, you know what I mean? I just think it's a shame that Kiki D never took her first manager's advice and went out as Kinky D, which was really? uh, yeah, that was that was his suggestion of what Good her Lord. stage name should be. But she she uh, rather prudishly said no. Oh uh, man, she would be wearing pink dungarees then on this if she was Kinky D. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't matter. She'd have, have nipped down to sex and got the uh, had the t-shirt with the two cowboys with her cocks out. <laughs> so Don't Go Breaking My Heart ended the year as the second highest selling single of 1976 behind uh, Bohemian Rhapsody Save All Your Kisses For Me <sighs> which is not going to be on this episode so don't worry right. the follow up a belated UK release of Benny and the Jets on his old label would only get to number 37 in October but his official follow up Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Would get as high as number 11 this month and is currently at number 17. And it will be another 14 years before he got his next number one with Sacrifice. If you're going to say anything about this song, it's his one non-shit number one in the UK, isn't it? Yeah. Elton John and uh, Kiki D and don't go breaking my heart and for the next announcement it's over to you Dave oh no you're not going to leave me to do it are you control no. yourself man I wouldn't mind them on the top of my control Christmas yourself. tree it's legs and cold control yourself. 
already discussed Avra on numerous occasions and this song, the follow-up to Fernando, which got to number one in May of this month, was recorded in the late summer of 1975 under the working title Boogaloo. Three weeks after it was released, it knocked out John and Kiki D off the top of the charts in early September and it stayed there for six weeks. And here is the first appearance of the afternoon for the still reasonably brand new Legs & Co. I mean, first things first, you know, there's so much to talk about here. But, you know, we've got to get this out of the way. Yorkshire Pudding on Christmas Day. Oh, they yeah, um, there's one being brandished on the end of a fork by DLT, I think, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. Um, are you against I it? I don't know, man. I mean, I, I, honestly, man, you know, I respect other people's religions and stuff like that. But Yorkshire pudding on Christmas Day, that ain't right to me. Yeah, I wouldn't be I sure. can't remember ever having Yorkshire pudding on Christmas Day. Now you mention it, yeah, I think you're probably right. I don't know. Yeah. But I, I think we need to unpack what Dave Lee Travis actually says here. At Please pro- do. At the prospect of seeing Legs get, & Co. Get the Stanley knife out. Because he says, you're not going to ask me to control myself, are you? Which is mm. um, a, a sentence that would be later heard backstage at various theatres where pantomimes were taking place. <laughs> uh, and, and then he adds, I wouldn't mind them on the top of my tree. And mm. I mean, that kind of gurgling sexism, I suppose, was standard for Top of the Pops and standard yeah. for the 70s. Yeah. But... Um, there is nevertheless something um, stomach-turningly bleak about it when it's um, witnessed from this era, uh, mm. coming from the you know pube-encrusted mouth of Travis. Mm. But having said that, um, uh, have a look at the Boxing Day edition uh, oh, yeah. when Jimmy Savile introduces uh, Legs and Coat Dancing to December '63. Oh, holy moly! Yeah, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Having said that, you can see where he's coming from. Because <laughs> this looks like if there was a porno version of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's oh, yes. like Christmas obviously triggered something in Flick Colby because mm. this rivals their performance of Sir Duke the following Christmas as yes. the most authentically erotic Legs & Co. dance routine. Uh, yes. Not so much because of anything that they're doing. No. Um, I mean, in Sir Duke, they're dressed as sexy reindeer on yes. the reins of a black Santa. Um, and the overtones <laughs> are pretty obvious, even before anyone had heard of Pony Girls or, the, or cared about the trope of black man as sex object. But mm. this sort of catches you off guard because it's just a yeah. scantily clad legs and coat, as usual. Yeah. But there's something about the combination, and I don't think it's just me, there's something about the combination of the tiny silver bikinis, big mm. fluffy white Cossack hats and gloves, yeah. um, and all that stuff dangling from their wrists and hips. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the ferrets from yes, the last episode. Exactly, it, yeah, yeah, probably the same dead rodents that they would later use to pay emotional tribute to John Lennon. Yes. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, know, I know what Taylor means about the kind of pornographic uh, aspect of it it's part yeah. of the camera it's angle. the angles isn't yeah, it they're shot from below most of the time yeah. at a very yeah. steep angle it's basically upskirt except they're not wearing skirts yes but yes <laughs> I, I at first i wondered up. if it was just me and that there was no. some but no and you can see this from the fact that they're on a little podium in the middle of the studio and the audience is gathered round, and nobody's dancing it's just loads of blokes just stock still staring yes. Yes. Some with their hands in their pockets. Um, <laughs> yes. And usually you watch Legs & Co. 
and any kind of actual sexual uh, aspect is completely neutralised, either by the atmosphere of sort of silly good humour, you know, like yeah. they're, like they're messing around in the attic with a dressing up box, or by that air of classiness and very careful propriety, you know. Um, and neither of those things applies here. So even with those fixed smiles, which were plastered on all dancers and lingerie models and stuff in those days to try and keep it light, you know, and diffuse any awkward feelings, um, mm. this is a performance which will make any viewer who is sexually attracted to women feel something unavoidably mm. carnal and probably yes. even a few who aren't normally sexually attracted to women. Yes. Of course, um, being eight-year-olds at the time, I would have just sat there and gone, they've got their knickers and bras on. <laughs> I just would have looked at it blankly. just yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. If, they, if they had pinafores on, yeah. Simon, you'd be well up for it. <laughs> Shut <you>? up. <laughs> <laughs> that little doily on their head held on by yes. an elastic band. Yeah. Or if they were two-dimensional. <laughs> yeah. By this time, they're, they're two months into their stint, their five-year stint on Top of the Pops. And, you know, we've had the Ruby Flipper, uh, Farago, oh, yeah. uh, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point. We still haven't done one with Ruby Flipper, that's wrong. But, yeah, they, they are all about peak satisfaction, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But it's it's almost disturbing because even making it look so cheap and British by plonking them in that, on that thing in the middle of the studio. You can see all, like, stagehands walking around and cameras and stuff around the edge. It's it's not presented very well. Um, but that... You can't escape it. That slight ironic detachment with which we normally view Legs & Co is banished, yeah. and you have to actually think about your own response for once. Um, yes. And it's almost a bit uncomfortable. I mean, in 1976... The response seemed obvious and natural, right? Unless you were a, an especially devout early adopter of feminism, you dropped your satsuma and said, "For I'd love to give them yes. one," you know, like David Lee Travis. And of course, nowadays, yes. to say that would be yeah. correctly considered quite vulgar and almost threatening. Um, so nobody says it, but obviously, that's still what everyone's thinking. Just hopefully not in those terms. Yes. It's a hard thing to even talk about because as soon as you mention it, people think you're one of those Jordan Peterson kooks or something. You know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, and I'm also I'm well aware that in the hit parade of societal problems, um, this is at best a top 40 breaker. But, um, yeah, I don't think we found a satisfactory middle ground between being uh, a sexist pig um, and denying our own impulses as though they were sinful and wholly dark and destructive. Um, and I don't think that as a society we'll grow up until we find a way to yeah. do that. But until then, for eh? Yeah, what I'm saying is like, fucking hell, get a load of that. Essentially what you're saying is what's wrong with being sexy? Yes, <laughs> yes it is. Yes, what's exactly. Wrong with yeah, being because they sexy. do look like the world's most erotic quality street tin on this, don't they? <laughs> oh, and I'd like to unwrap yeah. them. Good song, though. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I didn't really notice it. I think um, uh, Taylor actually uh, wrote one of my 
best favorite observations about Dancing Queen, which is that there's something kind of tragic about. It. I think I think you said that, that the fact that somebody's singing that they're having the time of their life um, at the age of seventeen, and that you know implicitly things are only going to go downhill from then on. Yeah, mm. yeah, and singing that line over uh, the most sort of heart rending chords in the whole song. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's much doubt that this is the greatest hit of 1976 Mm -hmm. in terms of quality Um, and that every second of it gives off this weird snowy light which is uh, at the same time is joyful and unbearably poignant Um, and I think musically this is the absolute high point of ABBA as a pop group Mm. uh, writing and producing songs which are intriguing and sophisticated and immediately irresistible but also it's a fascinating song because just like this legs and co performance it's really about the intersection of female self-expression and the male gaze um but in a subtler and more interesting way than if it had been made explicit. But right. because it's being sung by female vocalists, it's implicitly the female gaze, and that adds another dimension to it. That, mm. you know, yeah. it's it's almost these sort of older women, Abba, who I don't know how old they were, maybe in their late 20s at this point, uh, you know... No, older. Were they? And si- singing... They were old, yeah. yeah. Singing about... Um, a, a girl, you know, they're they're observing from the edge of the dance floor. Essentially, this this seventeen year old is really beautiful and dancing. Everyone's eyes are on her, and it's almost implicit in you know being sung by two women who are that much older. That uh, you know, okay, okay, honey, you know, um, you know, you're you're, you're t- enjoy your time while it lasts because it it will pass. I think that's kind of uh, implicit in this uh, because. Uh, Benny and Bjorn yeah. knew knew what they were doing when when they were writing songs when they were putting words in the mouth in the mouths of um, Frida and Agnetta, um they they knew everything that um, they they knew how to kind of weaponize that if you know what I mean like I mean the, the most yeah. famous example being Winner Takes It All but but if, even in this song I think um, rather than if if it was one of uh, uh, Bjorn's rare lead vocals like like Does Your Mother Know it would have yeah. a completely different flavour. If it'd be kind of quite quite creepy, this song. Yes. If it's been sung by <laughs> sung by Bjorn, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, I suppose. Well, it depends on how you delivered it. I think if you delivered it with a sort of uh, poignancy and helplessness, you'd get away with it. Um, whereas if you if you if you growled it uh, <laughs> into your shirt yes. collar, <laughs> maybe not. But but yeah, I, precisely. Either way, it's a it, it's a really deep complex emotional record and the fact that it's also a camp disco extravaganza yeah. is just a measure of its achievement yeah absolutely and um in some ways um it's both the cause of abba being seen as um cheesy and it's one of the single strongest arguments against that at the same time um yeah uh, you know you, you you can hold up plenty of other songs as uh, uh, examples of uh, abba's kind of serious claim to songwriting prowess um you know something like name of the game would probably be the first that would come to mind but mm. but this one's got both it's it has got that joyous carefree um uh, unironic abandon that it is um a pop song it's a it's a ridiculously euphoric pop song as well as you know being kind of heartbreaking mm. with with the descending chords and all of that yeah um but it, yeah, it's it's also quite quite complex for the reasons we've given, and it's it's all there. So in some ways, 
it, you know, it's almost the ultimate ABBA song. It's got both sides of them. And um, uh, a friend of mine, the, the DJ um, Errol Alcan, um, actually thinks this is the greatest record ever made by anyone. Uh, well, he, he mm. did think that. He's now changed his mind. This is the guy who's the, the cousin yes, of Roland Browning. Reggae Brown- like it used to be. <laughs> this is the guy who's <laughs> the cousin of Roland Browning from Grange Hill, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah, but he's, he's changed his mind to Blue Monday, but I think he got it right first oh, time. Fuck Blue Monday. Dancing Queen, cer- certainly one of the songs, there's probably about 10 songs like this for me, that while you're hearing it, for those three minutes, it is the greatest song ever. Yes. And and you will not take any argument that, that there's there's another song. And I think maybe five or six of those songs are written by Nile Rodgers, funnily enough. But this mm. is a, as good as any kind of uh, uh, white European act have, have got to, to that, yeah. to that, I would say. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's just Weddings 1976. And I know that, you know, when Dancing Queen comes on, it's just, you know, whatever's happening, everybody's just up off the tables. Sausage rolls untouched. Everyone's on the fucking dance floor. Yeah. And it's it's an incredibly girly song that men like, or at least grudgingly respect. I wouldn't trust anyone who doesn't. You'd have to wonder if they'd ever really listened to it. Yeah. 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 I know. Yeah. And of course, this marks the main event uh, in Top of the Pops Land in 1976. Pan's People Are Dead, Long Live Legs and Co, Ruby Flipper, We Barely Knew Ya. And there's going to be a very interesting compare and contrast uh, later on in this episode. Uh, yeah. But for now, it's safe to say that Legs and Co are being pitched as the sex people. And they're kind of living up to it, aren't they? For now. Yeah. Like that's but, not but, that's not but, a terrible sexist remark about like you know <laughs> what I mean is later in this show they yeah. come back with a somewhat less erotically charged performance. Well, yes, oh, it depends what you're into, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dancing Queen would eventually be usurped by a tune that we'll be hearing later on, and the follow-up "Money, Money, Money" is currently sitting at its highest position in this week's chart, number three. Indeed. That was the magnificent trip of ladies known as Legs and Co. dancing to a big ABBA number one, and they will be on again later in the programme. I don't think my heart can stand it. And now, for a late news flash, it's over to you, Reginald. Thank you very much, Andrew. And we've just heard from the Crimean War that the Light Brigade are not going to go ahead. Oh, what? No charge? No charge. Oh. Now, our little boy came up to his mom in the kitchen this evening while she was fixing supper. And he handed her a piece of paper he'd been writing on. And after wiping her hands on her apron, she read it. Travis and Edmonds pretend to be Reginald Bosenkay and Andrew Gardner as they do a shit news-related joke about the Light Brigade as they introduce No Charge by J.J. Barrett. Born Barry Authors in Ontario, Canada in 1933, J.J. Barry was the manager of Blue Mink, the 60s British band who had number three <laughs> hits with Melting Pot and the Bannerman, and Ocean, the Canadian rock gospel group who had a US number two with Put Your Hand in the Hand. 
After a spell as a stand-up comedian, he tried his hand as a songwriter, but it was this cover of the 1974 Melba Montgomery song No Charge that got him into the charts. The song, about a lad trying to get some money off his mum for the chores he's done, only to be told by her that she practically ruined her fanny for him, became a surprise hit in the middle of 1976, knocking Fernando by ABBA off number one. Fucking hell, I hated this song. It's a bit of a come down after writing Peter Pan, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well done. And a bit of a come down after what we've just seen beforehand. Yeah. You know, we've we've had something for the dads and now it's mum time, isn't it? And DLT, of course, um, in his... I, I thought it was more like Alvar Liddell or John Snag or something like that, that kind of old-school mm. BBC presenter Yeah, he's got, that, he, he's got that voice on, but he, they, they, re, they refer to each other as Reginald and Andrew. Oh, did he? Right, they? sorry. But yeah, yeah, he goes, I don't think my heart can stand it. So he's still, like, you know, leering after Legs & Co. finished. Yes. Um, it's, yeah. it's weird, actually, because out, out of these two, and, and I know it's like, would you rather eat shit or eat a shit sandwich? But um, there, there's some... In, I've, I find myself sort of preferring Edmonds to to, to Travis. I mean, all right, yeah. we know literally what DLT's crimes are, their actual crimes. Um, mm. With Edmonds, we all know what the charge sheet is. It's You know, we've already mentioned yeah. in, in, in uh, Chart Music's past... Um, his, his rant on Sky, on his Sky chat show about, uh, you know, planning permission for Wielden Council and all that kind of stuff. Uh, mm. we, we, we've mentioned, um, uh, you know, his, his kind of, uh, um, well, he's, he, he opposes the licence fee. He wanted to buy the BBC. Fuck knows how he was going to yeah. do that. Uh, yeah. he, he opposes wind farms. You know, he's basically, he's, he's awful. I think he's gone. Michael Lush. Oh, yeah, 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 of course. And, um, and the also, fact- he's, he's into the secret so he thinks that if you open your heart to the universe and tell it what you want, the universe will answer your desires. And well, yeah, I know this is bollocks in. just from the fact that no one has yet hogtied Noel Edmonds and thrown him <laughs> into a slurry pit. And whatever he might say, it's definitely not because I didn't want it enough. Yeah. Mm. Oh Christ! Yeah, that thing that he said to somebody on Twitter that yes. um, about you know basically it was their negative thinking that had caused their cancer. And, yeah, and that, he's into all that stuff. He's a sinister man. That stupid little fucking metal box that he advocates that sends out magnetic fields that supposedly prevents you from having cancer in the first place. All, all that bollocks, right? So he's yeah. gone full on mental in, in the last few yeah. years. Um, there's uh, Oh, but he's been on I'm a Celebrity, so he's all right oh, now. Yeah, so well, I he's a national treasure oh, once Christ again. Bike. The thing is, he's actually... Did anybody watch I'm a Celebrity? No, I didn't. No, because I've got... I intended to for chart music. I've got a fucking life. But I watched like five minutes of it and I just thought, you know what? I... I turned fifty this year. My uh, my days on this planet are numbered. I ain't gonna waste them watching this cunt on this shit show. All I know is that he turned up dressed as a Roman emperor with Harry Redknapp yeah. as his slave, and uh, he didn't last very long because and this this is this is actually sweet vindication I think for Tony Blackburn because Blackburn hates yeah. Ed- Edmonds is his exactly. nemesis, isn't it? And Blackburn won. I'm a celebrity way back. Mm. I think was it the first series yeah. even he won it, yeah. and uh, he must have been so happy. I just. I just enjoyed when I when I saw the news story that Edmonds would be booted out. I just thought oh, Blackburn's going to be loving this, and I I felt yes. I felt a sort of warm glow for Blackburn when that happened. Yes, but yeah. um, but another thing that makes Edmonds um, very much a man of of his time now is his views on immigration, right? Because I, I looked into yes. this. This is um, I found this story on Reuters, right? Uh, and what what he said about immigration not long ago, he said, "I'm very straightforward on immigration. The bus is full." 
we haven't got enough energy, we haven't got enough electricity, and we haven't got enough of a health service. And right, this is the bit I loved. Oh yeah, cause it's all British people running the national health exactly, service. Exactly, exactly right. But this is the bit I loved. He must think it's you know still got fucking Kenneth Williams and Charles Hawtrey running yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And Robin Nedwell. The Reuters story, right? described him, and this is such a brilliantly subtle put-down, described him as one of the country's most widely watched entertainers. (laughs) (laughs) Widely watched. Loudest bands. Yeah, widely watched. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) Not widely admired, not widely loved, just widely watched. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, um, so they fucking do their, you know, back and forth bit into this song and J.J. Barry, what a cunt. <laughs> or whoever wrote it in the first place. Yeah. Um, he's, for a start, he's a terrifying presence. His his nose is like some kind of industrial vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Right? Um, but this song, I absolutely despise it. Yeah. Because the kid just wants to buy some top trumps or pocketeers exactly, or something. Exactly, yeah. Or, or, or go down a swimming pool. Yeah, that one, that one with the racing cars, most likely. Yeah, yeah, Where yeah. You have yeah. to like turn it round and round and round and round and round, and then you know after about ten minutes you realise that oh the same thing happens every time. This is a swizz. Before this goes a bit too remember Spangles. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean the the song. I mean the child did not ask to be born. Exactly. We, when we're born, uh, we're thrown into an absurd universe which doesn't care that we're here. Yeah. So when the woman that the woman's doing that because uh, uh, you know. Um, J.J. Barry reads out the, uh, the, the the letter that the child writes, and all he wants is his fucking pocket money. Yeah, for, and it's not it's not it's not even pocket money like most of us get, which is just gets given to you. Yeah, it's money that's money that's given Earned. to him for doing some yeah for actual like Earned. household chores. He's, d- and, he's, and, and he's the, mowed the yard, and because it's America, that yard could be fucking massive. It could be massive. He's yeah, made absolutely. his own bed in a in a time when quilts were a, a, just a fantasy world. Yeah, he's gone down to the shop to get her fags and tampax. <laughs> um, he's 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 had to put up with his cunt of a little brother. Yeah, he's taken and out the, the, the trash. He's yeah. he's worked the... hard at school, and he's raked that fucking massive yard that he's mowed. That's so when... solid fucking graft. And yeah, fourteen dollars and seventy five cents. What would that be? Eight nine pounds, something like that in nineteen seventy six. I'm not sure. Probably a bit more than that because you know we had a healthy pound then. Yeah. He wasn't sitting about playing Sabuto, was he? He was doing something, and this and this is how he gets treated. And what she offers in reply is, for the nine months I carried you, growing you inside me, no charge. Yeah. Right? And in, in this kind <laughs> of, uh, this histrionic delivery of, of the female backing singer doing that yes. bit. Yes. Who is, who is Vicky stuff. Brown, who is Joe Brown's wife? Is that right? Yes. Okay. She's, but that that deal is like those squeegee people who would step out in front of your yes. car and start washing the windscreen, and you didn't want them to, yeah. and then they tried to get money out of you for mm. it. It's the same logic. Yeah, and I, you know, she basically lists things like looking after him when he was ill. Yeah. Um, basically, she lists a load of things that if she didn't do them, the social services would have to be involved. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, she didn't mention for laying under your fat, horrible dad. <laughs> thrusted away, no charge. And you know, she talks about buying toys, food, clothes, putting him through college, which she hasn't done yet. No, in the future, uh, and like advising him and worrying about him and all that. All right, well, that's you know, sure, that's what mums do, right? Yeah. And I don't want to get all kind of Jeremy Kyle about this, but if you don't want a kid, put something on the end of it. Yes. Fuck's it. Yes. And you know, and then 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 the kid at the end is a twist, isn't there? The kid goes. 
paid in full. Yeah. Like he's fucking when Eric being Raccoon reading, or he had big tears in his eyes and he looked yeah, up yeah. at his mother and he said, Mama, I sure do love you. It's like, no, yeah, that's not, the not worst in Britain. The kid would go, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- th- that's what I hate the most about this. The idea that any young lad would respond to yeah. that with tears and a declaration of love. Yeah. Like, ra- yeah, rather than just by acting like he hadn't heard any of it and just repeating, yeah, but please, yeah. it's bullshit. Kids are like cats. You can't reason no. with them. And they have near infinite patience and persistence when they want something, right? Yeah. It's like the same as I hate it in films where people are having an argument and someone delivers a cutting line, laying down a hard truth, yeah. you know, about the other character. And the other character goes silent mm. And looks ashamed and bows their yeah. head, which has never happened in any <laughs> argument ever. All people do is double down. It's bullshit. Yeah. Man. What this song is, it's it's a, a family sized version of David Cameron's Big Society mm. or George Bush Senior's Thousand Points of Light. Yes. The idea that we're meant to do stuff to help out just on a purely voluntary basis and what it is it's basically prepping us for thatcherism it's prepping us for the driving down of wages you know it's basically it's setting us up for zero hours contracts and all (laughs) that stuff and it's yeah it's and and it's meant to make you it's meant to make us think it's meant to make us think well it fucking did make me think it just didn't make me think what they wanted me to think yeah it's as creepy in its way as that uh red so vine teddy bear one that we did in a different episode also, the inescapable sleaziness of J.J. Barry's face mm. clashes really badly with the content of this <laughs> song, right? And I know in those days it was hard to find a bloke over 40 who didn't look pickled with scotch <laughs> and dark thoughts. So maybe that couldn't be helped. But he's got, like, he's got the smirk of a, of a faith healer with, with wondering hands, mm. you know, tax exempt. And it's cultural content like this that had your 1970s radicals talking about the destruction of the family unit, yeah. you know. Uh, and were it not for the fact that the only other arrangements on offer seem to be a recipe for even greater maladjustment, mm. you'd be, you would be right there with them after one listen. I mean, the, 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 the key memory that this song evokes is uh, the beginning of our summer holiday to, uh, I think it was Chapel St. Leonard's again, and being in the car on the back seat already fighting with my sister and uh, my mum and dad arguing and you, they've both got fags on and everything. And this song comes on the radio. My mum's fucked off with the pair of us. And she turns around and says, you want to fucking listen to this? <laughs> um, one of our teachers read it out in assembly at school. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh huh. Did a female teacher sing along in the background? Ha <laughs> ha! <laughs> they really should have done. We had this teacher, this female teacher, looked like Joan Baez. She'd have loved doing that. Oh, oh man, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I just remember even as a kid thinking, "Oh, come on." Yeah. You know, I mean, we we just want to buy some sweets or something. For yeah. God's sake. God. Yeah. M- God. Musically though. <laughs> musically though, yeah. this this sort of comes towards the end of a long line of these talking yes. records, right? Which often would be by non-singers, yes. like radio DJs yeah. or TV personalities, or something, just holding forth about something. Usually yeah. a stridently right Yeah, we know who opinion. we're thinking of here, don't we? <laughs> yeah, there's been a few. Over a sort of uh, stirring pops orchestra yes. backing, right? There's loads of American ones from around the time of the Vietnam yes. War, 
where you get like a pro-war monologue. Mm. Uh, there's a great one called An Open Letter to My Teenage Son by Victor Lundberg, which yes. uh, starts off quite reasonable, then becomes nightmarish. Uh, there's one called The Americans, which was a patriotic speech given on the radio yeah. by a bloke called Gordon Sinclair and set to uh, a backing of America the Beautiful. Then there's an answer record to that yeah. called An American's Answer to Gordon Sinclair by Charles Ashman, which takes a view of recent American history, which, to put it politely, is a completely deluded, self-serving fantasy. <laughs> And this, all of this, by the way, parodied beautifully in The Simpsons yeah. when Homer's record collection is revealed to contain an LP called These Things I Believe by Johnny Calhoun. Yes. <laughs> A spoken word album of his right-wing political views. Johnny Calhoun, presumably named in tribute to John Calhoun, the 19th century vice president. Right champion of slavery uh-huh. uh ala stonewall jackson who uh the singer who did that song the minute men are turning in their graves which is another <laughs> pro-vietnam war so sorry this stuff goes yes. on and on it's a bit of an obsession yeah. of mine can i just applaud uh, you for going on possibly the longest rabbit hole that chart music hey. has ever sent anywhere on. <laughs> <laughs> that's extraordinary that's records. deep that's deep research <laughs> yeah, no, I just, it, it's all there. It's all there, unfortunately. Man, this if only someone had done an answer have... record to no charge, but like, I don't know, someone like Pauline Quirk or someone like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and um, and of course in country music, yeah. the, the talking ballad is a huge thing yeah. anyway. Mm. Like, Except that that's usually, that's more this tradition because it's usually really sentimental, right? Like, you know, Old Tig by Jim Reeves. Mm. Uh, it's one of the most inadvertently funny records ever you know <laughs> but so i mean compared to the, the the political stuff it's like a breath of fresh air but in any other context this is like musical berry berry you know it's it's secular christian music is what it is which is a waste of everybody's yes. time um al i sense that you're itching to discuss uh, a british yes. or shall we say anglo-canadian example of the talking yes record. well yes so, huey green isn't it yeah I don't know this. Yeah, Stand up and be counted. Yes. Yeah, it's his prescription for the ills of Britain mm. in the uh, late 1970s. Yeah. And he meant it uh, most sincerely. <laughs> Is he calling for national service? It stops slightly short of that, but only mm. just. Yeah, if you've not heard it, I'm sure it'll be on the video right. playlist. Yeah, oh, yeah. it will be, yes. It will be. But yeah, this song, fucking, I mean, country and westerns kind of like resurged, doesn't it, by the mid-70s in the UK. But yeah. it's it's not the country and western that 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 was any good. It's cunty and western, that's what it is. Yeah, and someone should tell him orange buckskin doesn't go with that shade of blue. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't care, he's a family man. Yeah. So No Charge stayed at number one for one week and it was toppled by a single that we'll be seeing very soon. The follow-up, Where's the Reason, flopped and he never troubled the charts again even when he teamed up with God himself, Brian Clough, for the double A side, You Can't Win Them All, It's Only a Game. (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. I never knew that. What a shame Cloughy didn't do a, a version of No Charge responding to a transfer request from Trevor Francis. (laughs) <laughs> for getting you the fuck out of Birmingham, no charge. 
But for helping you score the winning goal in the European Cup final, there's no charge, young man. And he looked up at her standing there and said, Mom, I sure do love you. And then he took the pen and in great big letters, he wrote, paid in full. And Lord knows when you add it all up, the cost of real love is no charge. J.J. Barry, and that's no charge. Oh, very smooth, very smooth. Go on, then, Flash. Tell us who's on next. You read the script, use your love. All right. Next we got Laura Lordy and a trial of the Lonesome Pine. On a mountain in Virginia stands a lonesome pine. Just below is the cabin home of a little girl of I can't help but notice that now on the table next to the massive turquette there are two massive trifles. As it looks like that nobody's coming to um, Nolan DLT's party and I can't imagine why, you've only got to assume that they've actually demanded and got one massive trifle each. <laughs> no sherry. <Yeah. laughs> There's no way Nolan have a, a, a bit of trifle out of uh, where uh, DLT's been. No. They'd be beard well be beard hairs in both of them, wouldn't they? Rightly so. Yeah. But no, what a damn shame they're not sitting there later on just fucking pouring the trifle down the front <laughs> in a binge. Yeah, it's pushing each other's faces in. Yeah. There. Travis makes a loaf of bread actually talk as he introduces the trail of the Lonesome Pine by Laurel and Hardy with the Avalon boys featuring Chill Wells. That was awful, wasn't it? That bread thing. That's the kind of thing your fucking uncle or you don't like would do. Yeah. Make it spew out an argument for Brexit or something. What do you think, Mr. Loaf? Uh, we should go with WTO rules. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Born in Ulverston, Lancashire in 1890 and Harlem, Georgia in 1892 respectively, Arthur Jefferson and Novell Hardy were silent movie actors who teamed up in 1927 and made 107 films between 1921 and 1951. In 1937, they made the film Way Out West, which featured this song, which was written by Harry Carroll and Ballard MacDonald in 1913 and was based on the 1908 John Fox Jr. novel with the assistance of Theodore Chill Wills and Rosina Lawrence. Over a decade after both of them had died and their films were still being broadcast in the UK, particularly during the school holidays, an executive at Warner Brothers in the UK put together a compilation of soundtrack dialogue and music from the films for his personal use, but it was immediately picked up on by the label, which put out the LP The Golden Age of Hollywood Comedy, which got to number 55 in December of 1975. However, this song, which was on the album, was played regularly by John Peel, which helped get it into the charts, and to the astonishment of the label, it became the Christmas number two of 1975. Now, it's one thing having last year's Christmas number one on, this year's Top of the Pops, but last year's number two? Because it did hang around at the top end of the charts throughout January, so 
it's got a shout to, to, to be in there, but it, it's like having last year's Beano book, isn't it? Rewrapped for you. A little bit, yeah. I had no idea about that John Peel thing, by the way. Mm. I was wondering, how did this become a hit? Yeah. And you very succinctly told us. But Thank you. Yeah, you know, of all the things that John Peel might, might sort of claim, oh yeah, you know, I got Sex Pistols to number one, or just something like that. Yeah. Who knew that it was actually Laurel and Hardy, was, yes. you know, who did the biggest favour for? Him. Yeah. But also, never mind John Peel, surely Michael Rod has got some part in this. <laughs> yeah. Because this was a screen test perennial, yes. was wasn't it? it? It was on the whole time, yeah. It's probably why this print looks so washed out. Yes. It's the same bit of film they've shown a hundred times, like stored under Michael Rod's bed. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was on all the time. Like, you know how in, in Germany they're known as Dick und Doff, <laughs> and in Italy they're Crick and Croc, and apparently in Romania they're known as Stan and Bran. Uh, and in Ecuador, they're known as Ugh and Ugh. <laughs> uh, and on, on screen test, they were known as Laurel the Thin One and Hardy the Fat uh. One. As in, you know, what did Laurel the Thin One say when Hardy the Fat One <laughs> hit him in the face with a length of metal piping? So I was about to say nobody under 45 would have a clue what I'm on about, but I mean... Nobody under 45 is listening, so it doesn't really matter. Does but, it? oh, if only David was here, he's quite the aficionado of uh, L&H, isn't yeah. he? Mr Stubbs has got the box set, I believe. Yeah. He's really into them. Um, yeah, but... Hey, i got the box set. Have you? I'll have you know. Oh, yes. All oh, right. Yeah. Well, go on, then but... talk. Tell us about Laurel Nardi. Well, I love mm. them. First of all, everyone should have that box set of the films from the Hal Roach period because uh, you can get it for almost nothing now. And you just watch it and discover... The sheer simple joy of comedy pared down to its fundamentals and perfected through long, painful years of pratfalls mm. and matinee performances. So you've just got these two doofuses who can walk into a plank and fall on their ass, and you're sitting there with tears rolling down your face. It's like it's like having like neat pharmaceutical grade comedy injected into a vein you know and it makes you laugh as surely as a as a general anesthetic will make you fall asleep you don't have any control over it you can't explain it and you don't have to think about it it's just completely natural and that's not true of all the film comedies from that era like the the silent in the sound era there's plenty of films where other people fall on their asses and it's just a massive bore mm. you know but this is genius. And I know a lot of people find it alienating because it's so old. Yeah. And they leave gaps for the laughter of the cinema audience, yeah. which makes the pacing really strange. And mm. in that silence, you hear this massive hiss on the soundtrack, <laughs> like like the solar wind, you know. And to some people, that's a bit distancing. But you just have to let yourself go and really see what's on the screen and take it for what it really is. And it's just the purest and most perfectly delivered comedy of all time. So, Having said that, the, long, the longer their films were, the less good they yeah. are. Because in the shorts, it's just bang, bang, yeah. bang. But when you introduce a full plot and other characters that you're meant to care yeah. about, you're really just uh, diluting the essence. Yeah. Uh, so the film that this comes from, Way Out West, is supposed to be one of their classics, but I'm only mildly fond of it mm. myself. It's got some very funny moments, but this isn't really one of them. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's basically one joke in this, isn't there? There's one pratfall. It's when, you know, uh, Ollie is getting a bit fed up with um, Stan showboating with his deep voice and he gets the barman to hand him a mallet and he knocks him on the head mm. and suddenly Stan's singing with a lovely high voice of a sort yeah. of Florence Foster Jenkins-style singer, yeah. which uh, which is actually it's fairly funny. But, you know, how, how that was enough for repeated viewing and listening to, and, you know, to get it to number one, I really don't Well, know. they were always on... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. From the school holidays, weren't they, Laurel and Arde? Yeah, and that, that's my kind of knowledge of them is really... From, I, I think at the time, I wouldn't have even known if they were alive or dead still, yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't have known. Um, I, I knew they were from the past, but I didn't know how far into the past. And also, I think I think there was a cartoon series of them yes. around the same yeah. time, yeah. which confused matters further. I just thought they were sort of like this ongoing act. Yeah. Um, and when, when they turned up in the charts, that would have compounded that, I suppose. Yeah, yeah very, much, very much the Edmonds and Travis of their day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea that... that if a large man hits a smaller man on the cranium with a mallet, he will cause him to sing in a woman's mm. voice. So that I, yeah. that seems a little bit boulderized. I, I think that, I'm sure there'd be warnings to the youth about that, don't you think? But it's like it was meant to be a kick in the black and white bollocks. Yes, you know what I mean. But but in a way that would have been less funny. Yeah. In the same way that like when Rick Mayall and Adrian Edmondson do Laurel and Hardy's moves years later. Yeah. Um, they're less funny, despite having more realistic violence yes. and freedom to use profanities. You know, mm. it's like this. It's like almost like that polite nineteen thirties distance makes it all seem much funny. Like with Hitler. Fuck it. So I was doing my research, and I, I, I chanced across a copy of the Coventry Telegraph, and uh, it had uh, an advert for, uh, well, an advert for for a night spot. Yeah. Uh, without the uh, without the yeah. G, um, uh, and it says introducing the new tequila film and disco yeah. restaurants for that complete night out. Disco music every night featuring old movies and pop films, including Laurel and Hardy singing their chart-topping <laughs> smash hits. That was actually a selling point. I mean, how many yes. times a night? Is yes. it like once an hour on the hour or something like that? Probably, yeah. Yeah, fucking insane. It is amazing. You know, the idea of the pop video is still, you know, it's, it's still an extraordinarily new thing. And this is it. This is essentially a pop video. Having said that, though, about sort of eight years later, uh, my local disco in Barry, Tramps, uh, had a similar hmm. thing where um, when the Michael Jackson video for Thriller came out, 
Um, yeah. They showed it on a big screen and everyone just stopped. Like, you know, everyone just gathered around and watched for about 15 minutes or however long it is. And that, that was enough to get people through the door that they had that video. Yes. So I don't know if yeah. Lauren Hardy had the same effect in the 70s. Got to take your hats off to them, but you don't want to because they might fill them with shaving foam or something like that. <laughs> because I, I, I didn't know why it became a hit. Um, it, I, I just thought it was one of those mad things that happens in the charts sometimes. Like, um, mm. I remember in the late 80s, um, New York, New York by Frank Sinatra suddenly became big. Mm. And that was a hit again. I, I, again, yeah. I didn't know why, but me and my mates were all fully on board with it. It was it just it just made a change to hear something kind of old timey, you know. Yes, and I, authentically, yeah, old yeah, yeah, as well. And, and I don't know, maybe that's what people in 1975-76 got from this. Well, maybe it's indicating that you know pop music's really fucking on its arse. And yes, because there were well, a lot, yeah. there were a lot of re-releases in the charts this year. You know, the, well, there's there's another one coming up. Yeah, I mean, the reason this song came about was because of a of a fanboy. In high places. Yeah. And we're going to see another example of that very soon. Right. So the single was never followed up. They never darkened the charts again. And they are not to be confused with the British reggae duo Laurel and Hardy, which got to number 65 in March of 1983 with Clunk Click, Belt Up Dub, a commentary on road safety which features the lyric, If you were listening for Jimmy Savala... You wouldn't have broke your left ankle. <laughs> like the pine, I am lonesome for you. In the dark blue ridge mountains of Virginia, on the trail of the lonesome Laurel and Hardy in the trail of the lonesome pipe. What are you doing? I'm trying to clear up my dandruff. That's it's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, no, Here's it's Tina Charles. Christmas. <laughs> After some shitty dandruff joke, I don't know. Yeah, it's the it's, it's the crumbs from his food that he brushes off yeah. and says, oh, "I'm just getting my dandruff off." Yes, that or the yeah the Ugh. the flecks of dead skin from his diseased cock, which he's been mauling. <laughs> <laughs> and they introduce "I Love to Love" by Tina Charles. Born in Whitechapel in 1954, Tina Hoskins was a backing singer who began her solo career in 1969 with a flopped single which featured a then-unknown Elton John on the piano. After a stint singing covers on the first series of The Two Ronnies, she went back to session work, including backing Steve Hawley and Cockney Rebel on Make Me Smile, Come Up and See Me, and singing lead on the 5,000-volt single I'm On Fire. During this time, she hooked up with producer Bido Apaya, who created Kung Fu Fighting for Cole Douglas the year before, for the single You Set My Heart on Fire, which fell to chart. However, this song, the follow-up, entered the top 40 in February of this year, then soared 20 places to number three, eventually knocking December 63 by the Four Seasons off the number one spot on Leap Day. And here she is, back, or sort of above, 
the top of the pop studio. Oh, this is a bit weird, isn't it? What they're trying to yeah, do she's... here. Yeah, it's, it's... Well, she's basically up here amongst the lighting rig, isn't she? Yeah, because David Stubbs, when he's on this show, is always talking about yes. what's going on. The uh, darkness. The darkness up in the corners of the screen and the lighting rigs and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Well, here we're actually up in the lighting rig. This is really odd. Up in the gantry, where there are sort of TV yeah. monitors. And, you know, it's a health and safety nightmare. You wouldn't get a pop star. It you wouldn't is, get pop yeah. stars allowed up there now. No, um, but yeah, it's she, she's the phantom of the top of the pop. It's, run, a, isn't it she? Uh, it's it's a, a rare view behind the scenes on top of the pop. I quite like it actually as a gimmick, as a one-off. Mm. And yeah. you, you can even see a band waiting patiently below in sort of pastel jumpsuits. I'm not sure who it is, but presumably somebody who then turns up on the Boxing Day show. Yeah, yeah. It's she's she's stuck yeah. up on this gantry like John Motson, all like wrapped up. She's got a Christmas jumper, yes, and a scarf. It's on. a very rainbowy kind of like stripey one. It's it's, it's, it's a very swap shop rig. Yeah. Well, my it? first that was Doctor Who, Tom Baker. I thought she's you know channeling that a little bit. But she's wearing all this cold weather gear despite being even closer to the studio yeah. lights than normal. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's in yeah. an empty studio. I mean, my guess is that she had to record this earlier and then shoot off to do promotion in Luxembourg or something. Mm, but it does yes. look very strange, especially there's a bit where the cameraman's shadow suddenly looms over her. It's quite scary, like his hands yeah. are suddenly going to edge into shot and push her <laughs> off, like House of Cards. <laughs> Thankfully, it doesn't happen. I've got to say, and I hope this doesn't make me as bad as David Travis, but I think she's lovely. I think she's really attractive. Uh, yeah. Uh, so there we go. Um, that's the beginning and end of that. I'm not going to make any weird noises or any more jokes about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think we, we talked about Mum Disco in the previous episode with relation to the yes. Nolans. And this is Mum Disco, but it's a superior calibre of Mum Disco. Um, it's uh, it, it reminds me of uh, a song that came, I think, the year after, year after this was Love Is In The Air by uh, John Paul Young. It's got that kind of... Yes. It's very light. It's lighter than air. And often I criticise... Um, uh, white English um, uh, faux disco records for having no bottom end. But I think it's yeah. a strength on this record that it has no bottom end because it does seem to just float and fly. And I, I like that about it. Um, I've, yeah. I've actually got a couple of Bidu albums, um, Bidu being a producer of this, of course, and, and um, they're yeah. really good, but she really brings something t- to it. Uh, and and mm. um, it, as well as him, it, it comes from a good stable in terms of the songwriting. It's written by... Uh, Jack Robinson and David Christie, who also did um, Strut Your Funky Stuff by Frantique a few years later, which Ooh. is a brilliant tune. And yes. um, even though he doesn't play on this record, um, Trevor Horn uh, was the bassist in, in her band, in, in her live band. That, uh, oh, really? Yeah, that, um, and he was actually her boyfriend for a while. Um, and and uh, right. Jeff Down from the Buggles was also in Tina Charles's band. But yeah, like I say, he doesn't play on this record. But I I think it's 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 a very good record. Um, it's It's... Um, routinely wheeled out as an example of terrible, cheesy white English disco. But those people can fuck off. This is all right. It's, it's a, I think it's a wonderful record. Yeah. Thank God for white cheesy British disco because it, you know, it produced some of the best hits of the yeah, year. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, absolutely. I love this record. I mean, it is a bit sort of tacky, but it manages something really lovely. It starts off mm. as a sort of shift from foot to foot song, right? Like a, a bit lumbering, mm. like a you know disco dancing dinosaur. But the feeling slowly builds as it goes on, and the song opens out, and 
about halfway through it's become this beautiful swirl of you know rapturous frustration and it's that's largely down to tina charles's mm. performance right it's a nice arrangement and a good yeah. sound but she brings it to life because she sounds like she's genuinely invested in this ridiculous and obviously made up scenario right like if it had been mm. i love to love but my baby just loves to drink then that would <laughs> be believable but it's Okay, look, let's address the elephant in the room here, right? First things first. I love to love, but my baby just loves to dance. I love to love, but there's no time for our romance. I love to love, but he can't give our love a chance. We'll dance until we drop, but if I had my way, sundown, instead of going downtown, we'd stay at home and get down. Tina, he's gay. He's gay. Next time he unaccountably refuses to bang you because he has to strut his funky stuff on the disco floor, ask him what he thinks of Tom Selleck. I put on on all my best Victoria's Secret clobber. I've been sending him dirty notes at work, but he just saunters off in his glitter shorts and roller skates and just doesn't seem interested. Um, no. no, but it's funny because usually in old songs, dance is a euphemism for fuck. And in yes. this one, along with We Don't Have to Take Our Clothes Off by Jermaine Stewart, it's yeah. one of the few where that's definitely not the case. Uh, or, mm. Although I guess it could be a euphemism for bum. <laughs> but yeah, yes. um, it's good. But but she she sells this, you know, she's got such a trustworthy face, yeah. you really believe her. yeah. Poor yeah. love. Oh, and I'll tell you what else. Um, right, the the great light entertainment historian Louis Barth was taking issue with us, Al, on Facebook recently, if you remember. Oh, yeah. You remember really? he was complaining that people slag off the top of the Pops Orchestra because, in fact, they had some oh, very yes, good was, musicians yes. in and blah, blah, blah. Maybe we just got yes. unlucky because this is the top of the Pops Orchestra yes. with a live vocal, and it sounds yeah. fine. It sounds great. Um to the point right. where I actually had to A, B it with the record to check that it's right. not the backing track, yeah. which it isn't. Um, so, yeah, in this season of goodwill, let's all yeah. raise a glass to the merry men of the top of the pop song. It's what they would have wanted. <laughs> yeah, before they snatch it out of our hands and neck it themselves. No, you are right. Because, and this is the problem that the BBC Orchestra have. They're, they're, they're at their best when you don't notice them. Yeah, yeah. True enough. And you only do notice them when they're at their most catch yeah. it. Also, you could almost say that this is better because one of the best things about the original record is the weird spot echo on particular words yeah. in the bridge section. Um, oh, stop and top yeah. and all that. Yeah. But because yeah. they haven't got the right box to do it on this, they have to do this weird, like really weird spot echo that I think is done manually while she's singing. Um, and mm. I can't impersonate it, but... If you see this clip, you'll see exactly what I mean. It's this very strange sort yeah. of immediate dead echo on it, which uh, is is yeah. it's like dub. It's like really uh, really psychedelic. <laughs> but she's really belting it out. She's committing to it. Yeah. She's quite a singer, actually. Yeah. Yeah. She is. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's great. Every time you see her on telly, she just uh, she always does a really good job, and she uh, always just seems like someone you would trust. You know, with a secret. Yes. <laughs> it seems <Yeah>. really nice. <laughs> 
She's like the she's like the mum disco Donna Summer, Donna Mummer. <laughs> yeah, I think the overall takeaway from this is that they've put her in a right fucking spot here, and she's styled her way yeah. out of it. Yeah, good for her. Yeah, the, the, one of the triumphs of this episode, yeah. I feel. Just you just want to sort of put your arm around her in a friendly way and say, "Look, Tina, I know you yeah. think that he's less randy than Thora heard on a Sunday, but just go into <laughs> the utility room." Look behind the tumble dryer. Yeah. See that hold all <laughs> full of lube. Right. What do you think that's for? It wouldn't be lube in 1976. It'd be spry, crisp and dry, wouldn't it? Or something. <laughs> so I Love to Love stayed at number one for three weeks until Save Your Kisses for Me began its foul reign over Chartland. The follow-up, I Can't Dance to That Music You're Playing, Failed to chart, but she'd have two more top ten hits in 76 with Dance Little Lady Dance and Dr. Love, which is currently number eight in the charts. Did you manage to solve our BBC crossword puzzle? Well, they keep moving the clues around all the I time. I know, I know, yeah. it's terrible. Knock, knock. It? Who's there? Wurzel. Wurzel who? Just down the corridor, just, it's just on the right past oh. the... Uh... I threw my tractor through your haystack last night. Oh, I, oh, I. I threw my pitchfork at your dog to keep quiet. There's a crap knock-knock joke um, between Travis and Edmund oh, yes, before that. But, yes. but before yes, that, just for a second, I, I noticed, and it's quite intrusive once you do notice it, that the fade between clips is quite futuristic for 1976. Yes. Uh, it's like a Commodore 64 loading screen. It is, or, or a bit like the gold run on Blockbusters where it goes all hexagonal yes. sometimes. Kind of blocky yes. one-bit graphics, which I thought was kind of interesting. And At the time, it, it probably would have been mind-blowing. Oh, the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why, well, it's just like January 1977. <laughs> this record, though, very much not the future. Formed in Nailsea, Somerset, in 1966 by the singer-songwriter Adj Cutler, who doubled up as Ackerbilk's road manager and a cider mill worker, the Wurzels were originally a conduit for Cutler's scrumpy and western songs. <laughs> including unofficial Somerset anthem Drink Up Thy Cider, which got to number 45 in February of 1967. When Cutler died when his MG sports car crashed into a roundabout in Chepstow in 1974, the band decided to carry on. But without their songwriter, they tried their hand at redoing popular songs of the moment and almost immediately hit the jackpot with this interpretation of Brand New Key, which Melanie took to number four in January of 1972. This is the song that ended the reign of no charge and it got to number one in June of this year. Oh, the Wurzels, this is an eight-year-old I approved wholeheartedly. Yeah, me too. I've been to Adge Cutler's grave. Really? Yeah, um, I used to go out with a girl from Nailsea uh, for a couple of years, and uh, there's pretty much nothing to see in Nailsea apart from Adge Cutler's grave in the in the churchyard, wow. and also there's a bronze statue of him outside a pub <laughs> in Nailsea. Nice. That's how proud they are of him and the yeah, Wurzels. Right. Um, so Adge Adge Cutler was 
Did you pour out half a can of Scrumpy Jack? I never go anywhere without um, a woodpecker or a strongbow. You know me. Um, <laughs> Ash Cutler was... Um, I mean, some people would say he's the Brian Wilson of the Wurzels, but in a sense, he's, yeah. he's more like the Dennis Wilson, right? Because um, mm. Cutler literally worked in a cider mill. So he was the yes. real deal, like Dennis Wilson was the only beach boy who could surf. Yes. But, of course, he was dead by the time this came out. Yeah. Yeah, and a, a very unworzelish death yeah, as well. Yeah, I would say. He should have been trampled by cows. Yes. So there are three pieces now, aren't they? And um, yeah. his replacement as lead singer, Pete Budd, is this fucking... They're Fred like the West... Supremes, aren't they, of, of the West Country? He's this... Yeah, he is the Cindy Bird song <laughs> of Somerset. He's this Fred West-looking motherfucker. Yes, with his he eyebrows. is, but a really nice, friendly Fred West. A friendly Fred West. <laughs> he, but he haunts my yeah. dreams, I'm afraid. He's fucking Does frightening. He? There's something a bit frightening. Does yeah, he? you might actually get into that car. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> the, <laughs> this is the danger. Um, yeah, I think I found this fairly jolly at the time. Um, I, I, I think I quite liked it. And um, at that age, um, well, a lot of things would have passed me by. The fact that it was a, a sort of cover or a parody of the Melanie yeah. Key. That would have passed me by. Yeah, but just also, it was just a real proper song about real issues. Yeah, yeah I did. And also, um, the, the combine harvester penis metaphor would have, you know, I drove my tractor through your haystack last night. Yeah. That would have passed me by. <laughs> that would have completely Which is me. almost the same as the opening line of Sex Farm by yes, Spinal Tap. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Funny you should say, talk about dreams and uh, veer towards a sexual nature, Simon, because the other thing that springs to mind about the Wurzels, whenever I see this, was the letter in Viz where someone wrote that they had an erotic dream that they were in their living room naked and masturbating while the members of the Wurzels looked on and said, ooh ah, in a, in a <laughs> sultry manner. As he brought himself to issue. <laughs> you know what, though? In a weird way, like uh, lots, of the, lots of the records that, that we've talked about from the 70s are things which uh, uh, made me imagine what it's like to be a grown-up, like what grown-up life is like. In a way, I thought maybe being a grown-up was a bit like this. That, yeah. you know, you just have a jolly time drinking cider yeah. and just, just seem, you know, seem like you're having a right good laugh. Yes. And I, I think, yeah, I think I quite liked it at the time. Yeah. Um, this was their big year, of course, because uh, mm. they had that. What was the other one? Um, I, I am a I am cider, a cider drinker. drinker, which is like Una Paloma Blanca this year. Yeah. Um, but and and you could it's so of its time as well this one because it's got a Kojak reference in where Pete yes. Bird goes, "Who loves me, baby?" Yes. Um, and they're they're gamely fighting off the balloons. Like there's too many balloons. Yes, really? I yeah. mean, it's all very well. It's like Boy so, George all over again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. That that's maybe the only comparison that will ever be made. But although I can imagine the Wurzels <laughs> having a go at Karma Chameleon, that's kind yeah. of within their remit. But um, the the, uh, the the other thing I know about um, the Wurzels, how they kind of re-entered my life for a little while, uh, and this is the second time in two episodes that I'm going to mention British Sea Power. The Wurzels <laughs> have a weird relationship with British Sea Power. Um, uh, really? The Wurzels recorded um, British Sea Power's song "Remember Me," and in return. Uh, uh, British Sea Power recorded this song and right. they gig together at the forum and I don't know Good how it Lord. came about it's one of those weird hookups like Shawadi Wadi with Anstazenda Neubauten or something like that yeah. really improbable hookups but that happened they're like a they're like a slightly more credible Mumford yes. and Sons <laughs> so, I mean or Britain's answer to the band yes but I mean they really are because that mixture of yokelism and vaudeville yes does tap into genuine British traditions, yes. including musical traditions. Yes. And it's not really the Wurzel's fault that those traditions are generally worthless and nauseating. Mm. Um, 
but I actually lived in the country when this came out. Um, this is, uh, I told this story before. We, uh, we, my dad bought his mate's falling down old cottage for about 15p and had to move in and put stairs in and all this sort of stuff. And we moved into it, right? It was, it was in the country right next to a farm. Um, and I discovered that I sort of hate farms. Um, <laughs> It's cool that at the age of about five or six, I got to roam alone through the woods mm. and by the river and through the farm in a real 70s public information film style, you know, like a, a one-boy remake of Apaches, just escaping by the skin of my teeth every time. Um, and I do like how it means that all my memories of that age are so strange and rural and folk horror-ish yeah. uh, before I was pitched back into the crimpling suburbs <laughs> in about 1979. But yeah, what I learned is that farms are shit. Mm. They're, they're full of shit. They smell of shit. You have to work like a freak all year round just to survive. Um, you're up at 4am in sub-zero weather, yeah. shoveling dead lambs into a plastic sack, you know. And... and Worst of all, they're the real countryside. This is not the the lush, carefully sculpted landscape mm. that that we urban folks see out of the car window. Yeah. You know, it's not like the 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 poet's sun dappled idyll. Um, this is the real thing. This is how we'd all have to live if the if the solar flares knocked out all our power and yeah. all our knowledge and data <laughs> was suddenly and permanently irretrievable. It's a place that's all about killing yeah. and toil and shit. Yeah. Right? <laughs> lots and lots of shit all over your boots, down in your fingernails, in your lungs, and like horrible machinery grinding, silhouetted against the light, and electric wires to keep the pigs in place. And, you know, even in the, even in the shady orchard where the farmer got all the local kids, which is basically me and a load of uh, gypsy kids from the caravan site, to pick apples and cherries mm. for free. Um, everything's seething with parasites and worms or deformed and diseased because nature's a cunt, you know. Mm. And in in this respect, the Wurzels are the most authentic British country band <laughs> that we've ever had because they got all those nose hairs and ear yeah. hairs and, you know, and their bent faces and... <laughs> And you know, shitty boots, yeah, and their non idyllic vibe, yeah, and that's why I hate them because they're too real. <laughs> um, and I, I hope one day he's ploughing his field and he turns up a cursed amulet, he <laughs> <laughs> picks it up, who are what, what be this, <laughs> and that's the last you ever hear of it. Oh man. You know what? Um, I, in a way, I link this together with the JJ Barry record because, mm. um. In the same way that, uh, in my mind, country and Western music, and I still call it country and Western, yeah. uh, in, in my mind, is uh, just like I still think of metal as heavy metal. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it was It's kind of um, represented in my mind by things like No Charge and by other yeah. very cheesy um, uh, uh, country and Western songs of the 70s. Folk music, right? F- yeah. my, my dad loved folk music, and, and I instinctively flinched away from it because, mm. for me, probably the three records that uh, represented folk to me were this 
and uh, Day Trip to Bangor by Fiddler's Dram, yeah. right? And All Around My Hat by Steve yes. Ice Fan, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. That was what folk music was to me. I, I, I hadn't heard, you know, I wasn't listening to Fairport Convention or Bert Yansh or anything like that. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So so this is just what it was to me. That's, you know, when my dad said, oh yeah, I'm going to a folk club, one day you should come with me. It's like, yeah. in my mind, there's people sat on tractors like this. Yes. <laughs> with wellies on. Probably was, actually. Yeah. And the thing is, um, I, I remember watching uh, one of those kind of Isle of the 70s type shows and mm. Stuart McConey, I think he was talking about Harvey Smith and he said that uh, the 70s were a very Yorkshire decade. Mm. Well, for me, the 70s were a very Somerset decade. Right. right. And the words was a part of the reason. It was for me anyway, right, because um, our TV aerial uh, pointed to the West Country. Right. It's all to do with the, the topography of South Wales. All the and you were, and you were HTV, weren't you? Horlick. Well, HTV for ITV, but HTV West, not HTV Wales. This is the crucial right, thing. Yes. So we had HTV West and we had BBC West. So the local news programme uh, was Points West. So right. um, just because of the hills and valleys of Wales, that um, if, if, I point, if, if we point our TV aerial and try to pick up uh, Welsh TV, we just get nothing. Right. right? So instead, um, I, I knew everything that was going on in in Trowbridge and Stroud and Froome yes. and Yeovil. <laughs> I knew everything was going on in those places, but nothing about what was going on in, in Splot or Cowbridge or places just mm. around the corner. Yeah. Um, so, so in a that way... That was like um, me. That was like me. Uh, you know, random, you know, 1976, it's still ATV, which is the whole Midlands, but you got nothing but West propaganda. <laughs> so all the local news would be about Coventry and Birmingham and... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like being in East Germany <laughs> and you could only pick up, yeah. you know, Dodger Rundfunk or something. Yeah, we were sending those signals over the wall <laughs> yeah. so that you would understand there was a better <laughs> life on this side. And I, I'd yeah. also mention Pam Ayres, um, even though uh, everyone thinks yes. of her as a West Country poet. She's actually from Oxfordshire, but she's from the, the, mm. from that bit of rural Oxfordshire where people do talk in a very West Country accent. So, you know, people just yeah. lump her in with the Wurzels and all of that. So all of this, um, for a start, Somerset felt like a second home. Uh, and also because it's just over the mm. water, we'd be nipping over there to Bristol Zoo all the time and stuff like that. But um, yeah. also because of the TV thing. So the Wurzels having hit records did feel like a bit of a home win. But yeah, the Wurzels considered a good thing. And, you know, even now... I go and see him. This comes on, it's like... I wouldn't oh. travel to see them, but if they were playing, like, you know, half a mile away, I'd go. Why not? Yeah. And what a shame they couldn't keep it up you know, spoofing popular hits of the day. Well, they're better than the Baron Knights. Yes. For that kind of thing. Much yeah, better. Yeah, all tailored. Yeah, talking of which, we covered your first mm-hmm. song you ever bought. Yeah, so I hear. Looking back on that song now, because we were wondering while we, when we were eviscerating it, we did wonder what your thoughts would be and if you defend it nowadays. Um, No, it's terrible. Good. <laughs> as long as I know. So, Combine Harvester managed to stay at number one for two weeks before yielding to You To Me Are Everything by The Real Thing. The follow-up, I Am A Cider Drinker, got to number three in September of this year and then have one more chart hit in July of 1977 before going back from whence they came. Back to the country to get their heads together, obviously. However, they had a resurgence as a student union band throughout the 90s and a re-release of Combine Harvester got to number 39 in August of 2001. Sadly, their cover of Don't Look Back in Anger and a re-recording of I Am A Cider Drinker with Tony Blackburn failed to chart in 2002. Unbelievably, I've tried to research this because I've had it in my head. But no, they didn't call themselves Ooarses. <laughs> Are you a fine-looking woman? 
Wurzels. The Wurzels having a raving time over there. We come now to a gentleman who's been over to Scandinavia, he's been to Amsterdam, he's conquered America and Russia, and a big sound from 76 for Cliff Richard, Devil Woman. is suddenly eating a banana for I don't, I don't fucking know why <laughs> haven't you always wanted to see Noel Edmonds eat a banana like <laughs> like Mario Montez it's like it's that great traditional Christmas food the banana <laughs> we've covered Cliff Richard in Chart Music 15 and 1976 has seen a bit of a comeback after diminishing return set in in 1974 he put out the comeback single Honky Tonk Angel a cover of the Conway Twitty song after it was released, however, he was told that the song wasn't about a lady piano player at all, but was Southern American slang for a prostitute, and refused to promote it on television, and eventually got it pulled from the shelves. In late 1975, it was decided that Cliff would reposition himself as more of a contemporary rock artist, with his comeback LP, I'm Nearly Famous. And the first single from it, Miss You Nights, took five months to get to number 15 in March of this year. While the LP came out to rave reviews in the heavyweight music press, eventually getting to number five in the album charts, this song was released and it got as high as number nine in June of this year. Now, two things. Firstly, only number nine. That's ridiculous because I heard this song everywhere. Yeah. And But also, why is Top of the Pops putting it on their Christmas show if it only got to number nine? That's a bit... Good question. It's a bit odd. Yeah. But then Very strange. But Cliff was kind of Mr. Establishment at Mr. BBC, so yeah. Yes. I don't yeah. know. What's more, he gets he gets a, a really big intro from DLT who says mm-hmm. he's conquered America and Russia. Yes. <laughs> That's what he says. Yes. Cliff Richard. Like by shooting laser beams out of his eyes <laughs> yes. as he stomps across the Pacific Ocean knee yeah. deep. He's shooting a beam out of his crotch in this clip, though. Have you noticed? <laughs> yes. a bit, they, they got these kind of spotlights that are um, somewhere behind the audience, and he it's, it's filmed in the round. And it's angled quite a lot of the time so that when he's standing with his legs just slightly apart, this kind of beam of light is coming from his mm. cock at the camera. It's quite an extraordinary effect, especially from Cliff Richard, of all people. Yeah. yeah. And then it's overlaid with this kind of fire that's burning as well, because it's, it's his satanic classic. Devil yes. Man. It's basically about, like, beware of goth chicks, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a goth pioneer. But, yeah, he's, he's doing his danger dancing again, isn't he? Oh, yes. Just to emphasise it. <laughs> yeah. He gets well, down this low. Is the, this, is the, this is the very crucible of danger dancing, it is. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. It's it's a really good song. But the problem is with his danger dancing, he looks like someone trying to go to the toilet for a piss at four o'clock in the morning and can't be bothered to turn the lights on. <laughs> it's a bit like the child catcher or a bit like somebody in a sort of Victorian music hall doing like telling a scary story. Mm. Uh, you know, sort of like and what happened next was, you know, doing that, that thing yeah. like with his hands and all that. Um I really like Miss Unites, the the ballad that you mentioned that was the first yeah. single off the album. Yeah. In fact, um when when I DJ'd at Late Night Minicab FM, um, uh, that that was one of the songs I chose. Uh, good call. Yeah, yeah, it's a lovely song. But this, um, it's one of those ones. I mean, I think it's he or it has been reappraised enough now that um, only an idiot wouldn't accept that it, it's it's a great record. But um, yeah. 
were that not the case, I, I would be saying, oh, well, if so-and-so sung it, and I don't know who that so-and-so would be, you know, yeah. but, but if, if somebody's slightly cooler, then, then everybody would just recognise what, what, what a great song it is. Mm. It doesn't come from the most promising of songwriting stables because it's Christine Holmes, who was a former Crackerjack presenter, among other yeah. things, and Terry Britton. Terry Britton uh, ended up writing What's Love Got To Do With It, you know, whatever. Um, he also wrote Bang Bang for B.A. Cunterson. Oh, dear. So, yeah. That- yeah speaking of whom, um, this late period Cliff Renaissance, uh, well, I say late, it's early mid-period Cliff, really, isn't it? Mm. When he put out a string of half-decent records over a course of a few years, yeah. padded out with a lot of junk. But there's, yeah, there's this, Miss Unites, uh, We Don't Talk Anymore, yes. Carrie. Yes. Um, but Carrie is B.A. Robertson's I know. I know. one bargaining chip it when hurts, he finally it? meets yeah. St. Peter. Wired for yeah. Sound as well, wasn't that him? Yeah, yeah. but Wired for Sound, something about it suggests that B.A. Robertson's fingerprints on that had a detrimental effect, yes. you know. <laughs> Whereas there's not really anything wrong with Carrie, so you mm. have to say, mm. you know, this, this is BA knocked it out of the park. But yeah. knocked I mean, it off. Yeah. But then that's it. Because <laughs> after that, it's straight into Daddy's home mm. and a clear run of shit, you know, yeah. all the way to death. Yes. And tennis with Mike Reed and, and golden showers with Mary White. <laughs> <laughs> Is it is it time for me to tell my devil woman story yet? Oh, I've been yeah, waiting I think, for this. I think you have to, Come and yeah. sit by the fire, everyone. <laughs> right, pop crazy youngsters, plump up your cushions because this is uh, this is one of my epics. <laughs> um, all right, when I was uh, um, and I don't know I, what's I guess, coming, so you don't know what's coming. No, oh, no, right. I do, yeah. and I still I, I still can't hear this record without laughing because I just remember <laughs> Simon's story. So this would have been maybe about a year later, mm. um, and. Somehow, Devil Woman by Cliff Richard had passed me by, and this is an important detail of the story. Right. I wasn't familiar with the song, even though it was a, a number nine hit, as we now mm. know. Um, so uh, I was at uh, Barry. Um, hang on, let me get this right. I was at Romilly Junior School in Barry, mm. and we had a school outing to Cardiff to. Um, Sophia Gardens, where there was a classical concert because the school thought that would be improving for yes. us to go to a classical concert. And uh, it was the, the, the Halle Orchestra with the Vienna Boys Choir. And um, right. and we were just quite excited to be out of the school and just going to a thing. It didn't really matter what it was. So we're all sat there um, in, 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 the, in the seats um, waiting for the show to start. And the row of seats behind us were taken up by... What, in retrospect, I imagine must have been um, the inhabitants of a care home who right. were um, who were out on a sort of on a treat, on a jolly, um, mostly elderly people, and um, there was this one lady, bless her, directly behind me, um, who probably didn't really know what was going on anymore. Um, mm. She w- she was probably in advanced stages of dementia. With hindsight, um, she had no teeth in. Um, her limbs were flailing all over the place and she wasn't really looking at anything. Yeah. And which is, you know, it's not something I would ever want to make fun of, but the funny bit is how children react to this stuff. Yeah. Because right? children are awful. Children yes. are absolutely awful. Yes. Now, um, and in a way, that this is similar to Bummer Dog because the thing that's funny about <laughs> Bummer Dog isn't so much a dog bumming kids. It's no. the way that kids react to that yes. by calling it Bummer Dog. So it's kind of in that vein. <laughs> so my mate David Thomas who was sat next to me, uh, nudged me and uh, indicated this woman behind me with with um, her, her gummy, toothless um, mouth and all of that. 
and he started singing to me, Beware the gummy woman with evil on her mind. Beware the gummy woman, she's going to get you from behind. And I just laughed. I laughed in that way that you probably only laugh at the age of 10, where you absolutely double yeah. up and you're in pain and you have a stitch laughing because yeah. nothing else matters in the world. And he passed it along the line of, and everybody was sort of just pissing themselves and laughing at... Uh, you know this this gummy woman song, and I didn't even know it was a Cliff Richard song. I just oh. thought he'd freestyled it. Right. I thought he made it up. If anything, I thought it was loosely based on "Remember You're a Womble." Um, <laughs> so, so absolutely, you know, to to this day, as Taylor says, I, I'm I'm glad that I've, I've spread the kind of earworm to him. Um, when whenever I hear this song, I'm I am ten years old again and laughing very cruel laughter um, at yeah. some elderly lady. But really, just it's. At this distance, I'm I'm more just laughing at what kids are like. Do you know yes. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> when I was watching this episode for the first time, uh, preparing for this, uh, I paused it and went upstairs. And this song was in my head, and I found myself singing involuntarily. Be aware, the gummy worm. <laughs> after all these years, uh, and, and people like her are pretty much Cliff Richard's audience nowadays, isn't it? True enough. Fucking hell. I remember I moved back to Nottingham a few years, you know, about, oh God, 15 years ago and so. And I went out one winter with my mates and we're outside the um, the Royal Concert Hall and I'm going around going, oh, fucking hell, I didn't realise things were so grim in Nottingham. Look at all those old people sleeping out and they've got they've got beds and they've got, they're all wrapped up and everything. It's fucking terrible. What's going on? And I went up. I said, you all right? What's going on? I said, oh, yeah, we're, wait, we're, we're queuing up for Cliff. They were queuing up in the dead of fucking winter all night in the middle of Nottingham, which at the time was pretty fucking Wild West, to get ki- to get tickets for Cliff Richard um, at a date that they might not be alive for. Yeah. Insane. Yeah, and then you the... see it every year. And, and which know... he might not be alive for. Yeah. Yeah, this is the terrifying thing. People, people like, there's all buses going around London now with... Uh, uh, advertising Fleetwood Mac concerts that are like about 18 months away yeah. or something mm. and it's like oh, that's uh, nothing like confident yeah <laughs> I'll tell you what though, you've got to say though even though this is a brilliant record yes in and a silly is. kind of way mm. um, and you know he's got a good band on it so it sounds good and it, it sounds kind of contemporary without being too forced yeah right? you, you still come away from it hating him because it's mainly it's that bit where he goes on about her feminine ways, yes. right? Now, some of the fact that he pronounces it wrong, which is annoying, by by feminine or feminine, he seems to mean the occult. Yes, <laughs> which is I coming from this supposedly sexless Christian nut. Mm. You know, this is the thing, isn't it? He's a fucking damaged lunatic, mm. like all religious people who don't have to be religious. Yeah. Right. If you're 86 and wobbling, or if you've been terribly unfortunate in some way, I can kind of understand it, right? Mm. But Cliff was a young, good-looking, successful guy. Yeah. So you know that he's a nut, mm. right? Because it makes him seem so untrustworthy mm. that he found religion in that at that point in his life, yeah. you know. And so, yeah, of course, here he is now directly equating femininity and the forces of darkness, yeah. like all his monotheistic mates, right? Yeah. It's like, he looks between a woman's legs and he just sees a pentagram. It's <laughs> fucking typical. Mind you, a lot of the goth I, chicks I, I know, that is... Anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I pity Sue Barker 
for yeah. having to deal with this fucking psychotic. I bet he used to make her wear devil horns and <laughs> ram tennis rackets up his ass. She's just um, a tennis woman. <laughs> yeah, and he, she had to address him as Nazarene. <laughs> Seriously, if he if he hadn't been able to sing like a nightingale, he'd he'd be lifting weights in prison now. Yes. With with his eyes gouged out by a bloke called Mickey the Swan. <laughs> with a government issue spoon sharpened to a point over a period of seven months. Yeah, fuck Cliff. Fuck Cliff. He's what's wrong. <laughs> Anything else to say about this? Yeah, I mean at no. least he didn't put it on straight after erotic quality street. <laughs> No, he would have liked that, mm. though. I think Cliff would have uh, thought, yeah, he would have appreciated the opportunity to comment on those licentious hussies. Yes. Mm. So the follow-up, I can't ask for anything more than you, babe, would get to number 17 in September of this year, and he'd have to wait three more years for his next big hit when We Don't Talk Anymore got to number one for four weeks in the late summer of 1979. And in 2017, this song was featured in the film I, Tonya, as the theme music for Tonya Harding's Horrible Mam. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is a brilliant film, by the way. Yeah, I've not seen it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely worth watching. She's gonna get you. She's just a devil. amazing year it's been for Cliff Richard and it's also been an incredible year for the Swedish band ABBA. They've had three number ones and here they are with an Italian song. No, wrong, wrong. It's not an Italian song. What do you no. mean? No, it's Liverpool. Liverpool. I mean Liverpool. It is, because when the kids came home from school hungry, they knocked on the door and they went, Mom, I'm here! So DLT takes this next link and mm. uh, basically um, he uses Edmonds as his straight man for a terrible, terrible joke where uh, oh, gosh, he claims yes. that he claims that uh, ABBA had a big hit this year. Well, actually, Noel, Noel sets him up for it. Um, Noel, Noel says uh, ABBA had a big hit this year with um, an Italian song mm. and uh, DLT butts in and corrects him. He goes, no, it's a Scouse song. And Edmonds goes, no, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? And he goes, uh, it's when kids come home um, for their dinner in Liverpool and uh, in a Scouse accent go, Mamma Mia! Mm. And that's and basically that's it. That's the joke. That is it. By DLT standards, that's quite good. Yeah, it's another excuse for him to crack out his yes. perfect Liverpool accent. Yes. Well, it's, it's something, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose at least it's a, um, a specific located northern accent this time. But one thing you notice with Travis and Edmonds and just... 70s people in general is that northern accents are their go-to voice for something for it's almost a substitute for humor yes if, if they haven't got a joke they'll just say something in a silly northern accent yeah which yeah. i think happens later on in this show as well can imagine travis is quite upset that he didn't get to reprise laurie lingo in the dipsticks for uh, <laughs> either of the top of the pops christmas specials in 1976 yeah hey that's a big wagon christ so we've discussed abba um just 
just now in this podcast, really. And this song, the follow-up to SOS, which got to number six for two weeks in October of 1975, was the first new number one of 1976. This was the stud that finally took down Bohemian Rhapsody on the last day of January. Wow. SOS was was quite a big hit, but I think this is a song that, that kind of established ABBA as, as the coming thing that wasn't going to go away pretty soon. Right. Yeah, mostly known in my school in its vulgar playground variant, Ooh. I have to say, which is far too childish and lavatorial for me to share on such a prestigious <laughs> podcast. Go on, force yourself. Go on, it's if, Christmas. If I, if I just... If I just say that it begins, Mamma Mia, it's diarrhoea, you can probably uh, work out the rest of the lyrics yourself. <laughs> we were not afraid of using the obvious rhymes, put it that way. Yeah. Did it rhyme broken halted with farted by any chance? Yeah, yeah. yeah you, who'd have thought, yeah. The rest writes itself, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? So yeah, yeah, this song. Well, it's a less effective SOS, mm. but it's still incredibly great. Yes. Um, and it's a measure of their brilliance that... Uh, a lot of their songs either sound very complex in their arrangement or composition, but are actually really simple, and others are actually really simple and sound really complex. Mm. Just the the delicacy of the light and shade and loud and quiet yeah. in the backing track and the precision with which it's put together, it makes all these songs sound like works of great complexity, even when they're actually really simple, mm. like this one. Um and if you can get all this stuff precisely right every time, which they could, um, yeah, you really are extraordinarily talented and you really can be trusted. Yeah, this is one of the key kind of exhibits in the case that ABBA are high camp. Um, but nevertheless, it's a brilliant song. And it's not either or with that. There's no reason why you, could, why you can't be both. Um, it's not as good as Dancing Queen, but ABBA spoiled us. I mean, like the... Swedish ambassadors with a plate piled high with, with, with musical Ferrero Rochers. They absolutely spoiled us. Um, because um, if this was a one-hit wonder and this was their song, we would look back on them with absolute mm. affection for this amazing song. But with yeah. ABBA, it's just, like, it's just another yes, one of their hits. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know what I mean? Um, so at least, at least we get to see them uh, this time. And, and this um, song, I think I'm right in saying, was the start of that face-to-face, back-to-back, mm switch around thing that Frida and, and Agnetta used to do, which of course has been like just copied down the years by everyone from Erasure to Lady Tron and uh, and of course by actual ABBA impersonators. But um I think yeah. this was the first time they did it, which is a cool little gimmick. Mm. It works really well on video as well. Um the the weird thing is that this song is more complex than it needs to be. Because um, I can never latch onto the intro that did yeah. because um, he che- what he does and it kind of pushes the drama of the song along a bit is um, he changes um, the chord like a beat before he needs to um, and, and a beat before the vocal melody does every time and it adds it adds a sort of edge of suspense and um, kind of it, it means that you can never settle into the song and and uh, that you know I, I, that, that's a really clever trick and he didn't have to do that. Um, I'm, I'm talking about um, Benny, the pianist. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, another reason I'm, I'm really fond of Benny from ABBA, my dad looked like Benny from ABBA Whoa. as a young man. And uh, <laughs> I mean, he really did. He really did. And uh, one time my dad was up in London on a record buying expedition and he got mobbed by Japanese tourists <laughs> <laughs> who thought it was him. And uh, of course, he signed he signed autographs for them and you know, posted photos or whatever. Because, you know, you would, wouldn't yeah. you? You, know, you don't want to disappoint them. No. 
So yeah, um, yeah. so so yeah, I, I, I like him because of that. I I kind of um, found myself fascinated by the backing band here mm. because you've got these musos. I don't know if they're ABBA's kind of regular band who went everywhere with them, or if mm. they're just sort of BBC, you know, um, stand-ins. But no, it's they they had a regular band. Yeah, did they? Uh, it's well, just the, you stop seeing them after a while. All right. Yeah. Well, the, the drummer um, looks like Eric Idle. I couldn't get that out of my mind. <laughs> The other thing I couldn't stop noticing, and this slightly upset me, is that um, obviously they're miming, and Frida smiles as she sings, so it looks like she's singing Vava Via instead of Mamma Mia, <laughs> and that kind of bugs me a bit. But um, that's all I've got on this song. Yeah. See, I'm I'm fascinated by Benny's hair, which seems to have maintained the same degree of slightly receded thinness for 45 years. Mm. And I don't know how that's possible, but it's really impressive. Yes. And the only other person I can think of who's got that is uh, uh, Brett Anderson, who mm. may actually be his uh, less talented, lost younger brother. Who knows? <laughs> They're dressed quite tastefully yeah. in this as well. They've got uh, blue satin trouser suits, yes. which, you know, I mean, it's not really day wear, but it's, you know, compared to some of their stuff, it's looks quite, a lot quite better reserved. than your description of it, put it that way. I was reading recently about their tax-deductible costumes. Mm. Have you, did you see this? No. Right? This is why they spent... This is what they say now, anyway. Well, they spent so much on their outfits because in Swedish law, you could claim the cost of stage costumes against tax. So they spent as nice. much as possible uh, on the gear. Um, but it's weird. As much as I love ABBA, so much of them and so much of what makes them great was actually a reaction against the kind of scando-socialism that we all revere, mm. you know. And it's quite weird. Um, I mean, it's that's fine when you're talking about them deliberately going all out commercial and pop because they were so sick of the sort of earnest, fishing cap-wearing, uh, fake prole censoriousness of the Swedish folk scene, right, which was apparently very dour. Mm-hmm. And there's a very sort of dour left-wing orthodoxy. But... It's kind of a bit much when it gets to, you know, I might have to give up a grand to be spent on a hospital, so I'll buy some flares instead <laughs> to make sure they don't get it. Um, it reminds me a lot of the the deeply spiritual and God-conscious George Harrison, mm. who, uh, aside from writing Taxman, um, apparently as soon as he knew he was going to die, he did some palaver with his estate and transferred something to Switzerland so he wouldn't have to pay full death duties in Britain um, even after he was dead and apparently uh, Derek Taylor the Beatles old PR man who was a great friend of George's but who was like an old lefty uh, was having a go at him saying George you, you grew up on a council estate where's the money coming from if you don't pay any tax to which apparently George Harrison said I don't know but they're not getting mine See, there's my perfect Liverpool accent. Mm. But yeah, Harry Krishna to you and all, you cunt. Yes. And that's the one thing about ABBA that sort of I don't like, right? Like when I was in uh, Stockholm last, I went in the ABBA museum. But it all seemed so rubbish mm. and expensive that I didn't actually go into the museum itself. Um, I just looked around the gift shop and winced mm. at their ongoing willingness to sell themselves as camp and silly because that's the easy score yeah, you know, yeah. And that's i've where been the in money it is. yeah did, did you go to the actual museum well um what happened was that that exhibition came to london a few years ago yeah. uh, in Earl's oh. court um uh, before it found a permanent home so yeah i went to that and um yeah. they've got 
it's so shit, right? Because uh, it, 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 it claims to be the arrival helicopter, but it's not even a helicopter. It's clearly just a fake helicopter made by their props department. And, and you sit in it and you've got the backdrop of the arrival cover and you can pretend that you're in it oh, and all that. God. So it's, it's a bit rubbish, really. But yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that tackiness and, and sort of money hungriness was always a real part of what they did. But I've never really appreciated that thing of selling yourself short because it makes good business sense, you know. But at the same time, that hard-headedness is what drove Abba towards pop in the first place, and we are trying to apply countercultural values to pop music like old men, you know. And uh, Abba were ahead in that respect, mm. you know. So Mamma Mia stayed at number one for two weeks before being usurped by Forever and Ever by Demis Roussos. The follow-up, Fernando, hung in at number two for three weeks in April before taking down Save All Your Kisses For Me and staying at number one for four weeks, meaning that ABBA spent three whole months looking down on everyone else in Chartland in 1976. Quite right. Mm-hmm. Have uh, a bit of Mamma Mia. Get on with it. We got Hank Mizell, <laughs> and he's got a bit of jungle rock, which goes rather nicely with the roll. A bit of rock and roll. I was walking through the jungle just the other night. What happens this time is DLT pretends to have some kind of fit, like he's been electrocuted. Yes. And I don't understand. There's no kind of particular setup to it. That's just it. The visual gag is that he sat in his chair vibrating. For all we know, um, he's still thinking about legs and coat. Oh, well, just as well. Yeah. Born in Daytona Beach, Florida in 1923, William Mazzell joined the US Army during World War II and relocated to Alabama afterwards and changed his name to Hank in tribute to Hank Williams. This was his first single, which was put out on Echo Records in 1958, where, according to Mazzell in an interview with the Daily Mirror this year, it sold between 20 and 30 copies. However, it was picked up by King Records a year later and re-released, but it flopped once again. Mazel packed the music game up in 1962 to become a preacher, but in 1971, an original copy of Jungle Rock was discovered in Nashville by a Dutch collector called Seas Klopp, who put it on his bootleg compilation LP, Rock and Roll Volume 1. That LP was picked up by the British TED DJ Roy Williams, who bootlegged it himself and played it out at rock and roll nights, leading to such a demand for it that it was put out this year on Charlie Records, where it got to number three for three weeks in May, leading to a search for Hank Mazel, who at the time was 54 and nowhere to be found. And here are Legs and Co. working their second shift of the afternoon with the assistance of none other than Tony Blackburn, who has been lobbed into a massive cooking pot. <laughs> well, chaps, before we go any further, it's we've got to point out that 1976 was a very bad year for Tony Blackburn. 
Uh, he lost his wife to Richard O'Sullivan, of course. Uh, then he contracted mumps. Then he went down with a case of laryngitis. And now look at him here. He's spending his Christmas day being boiled alive by Legs and Co. and the Junglist Massive. <laughs> and his bitter nemesis look on, gorging on trifle and laughing at him. Poor sod. Yeah, having nonetheless managed to locate a supply of hairspray in the jungle. Yes, thank God. Like in those cannibal movies. Yeah, good preparation for uh, I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Him. Oh, yeah. We've got to point out, though, that he is hosting the Boxing Day edition of Top of the Pops with Jimmy Savile. And that one features the Brotherhood of Man, Billy Ocean, Sailor, The Real Thing, Dr. Hook, Johnny Mathis, Moore Abba, Rod Stewart... Legs and Co. Dancing to Let Him In by Wings and December 1963 by The Four Seasons. Chicago, Show Waddy Waddy and Our Kid. That's a good lineup, though. And um, poignantly, while Savile was playing Patience, uh, he introduced his favourite song of the moment, If You Leave Me Now. Oh. These two episodes are, are, are demonstrating there was a bit more to 1976 than, than, than people think nowadays. Yeah, in terms of the massive sort of smash hits of the year, it was it was a strong yeah. year. Legs and Co. In the Boxing Day one, uh, they, they get their tiny pants on again for December 63. Oh. And um, they, they do this thing with loads of opening and closing doors for Let Them In, in long dresses. So, uh, so yeah, they're, they're very busy, very busy ladies uh, this festive season. Yeah, well, this is a, this is a, a, a corrective after the Red Hot Ice Queen routine. <laughs> from earlier this is yeah. this is legs and co being your chums do you know what i mean yeah like yeah. they're equally scantily clad but yes. suddenly the context has changed and yeah. nobody's thinking unholy thoughts because mm. you, you you couldn't unless you're a furry basically mm. um because yes. they because they are dressed as jungle ladies i suppose yes uh, sort of like the tribe in carry on up the jungle you know mm. uh and they're dancing around the cooking pot with Tony Blackburn in it, along with yes. some, and I use the word loosely, some animals. Um, <laughs> yes. Which are just some other dancers wearing animal costumes, um, yes. which seems to have come out of the BBC pantomime costume cupboard, or, you know, it was whatever was left after the all-star record breakers had rifled through it. <laughs> and all of these costumes are hideous and terrifying. It's like that yeah. nightmarish representation of animal form that you see on like old 1950s money boxes painted with mm. red paint, you know, with like cymbal clapping monkeys, you know. Yeah. Um, really grotesque and small eyed and creepy. And I bet they reeked as well. I bet yeah. whoever had to get in that old bear suit, you know, give mm-hmm. it a bang and a load of moths and dust fly out. And it smells like a World War Two shed, you know. Yeah. It smells like my bathroom at the moment, all mildew and <laughs> but with a dash of chicory sweat. Nice. I mean, obviously, Tony Blackburn being put in a cooking pot by, um, in inverted commas, natives, uh, mm. is problematic in itself. But um, yeah. as well as being politically incorrect, this is actually zoologically incorrect because there are several animals represented yeah. who wouldn't even be in a fucking jungle. No. Like, like elephants and camels, uh, yeah. for yeah. starters. And Kangaroos. That's Hank's fault because they're all mentioned in the record. True yeah. enough. Yeah, they yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah, it does go back to him. He's, I mean, to be fair to Hank Mazel, he'd probably never been to a jungle. Yeah. Um, no. but it's basically it's it's not America rock is yes, what this yes. record is. You know <laughs> yes. what I mean? Although to his credit, he does recognise that, that there's a difference between a chimp and a monkey. Yes. Yeah. Well, there is a monkey in in this who uh, has clearly come from Huntington Life Sciences because it's smoking a fag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. The other thing which is zoologically inaccurate uh, is that the alligator has got tits. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to mention that, but jungles yeah. were big in the seventies in general. I think the seventies yeah. childhood was, you know, full of kind of jungle stuff, mm. and you know, I, I just, I just think um, jungles, along with kind of like the Wild West and space, were places <laughs> where just kind of fun stuff happened in adventure stories. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So that yeah. that was part of the reason why this this would have been a hit. I think. Yeah, I can't believe there was never a kids' TV show called Space Jungle. Yeah. yeah. But this is a great record, isn't it? Yes, it's it a is. fantastic record. It really so is, good. and I love the story that Al told that about um, you know the bootleg of a bootleg. It's it's, yes. it's wonderful how something can kind of uh, spiral through through the culture like that um, to, mm. to a point where suddenly it becomes a hit. It's a bit like North. It's like a rock and roll version of Northern Soul, exactly like Northern Soul. But I mean, but this is a a, a beautiful example. There's a whole galaxy of rock and roll and rockabilly and R&B records from late 50s and very early 60s. Yeah, which are to the great canon of historically important rock and roll, precisely what Northern Soul is to Motown. Like, and there's millions yeah. of these records. Mm. Um, and they're all cheap and loud and crude, and thousands yeah. of them are, are, are terrible, but hundreds of them are amazing. And yeah. more of them should have been surprise hits years later. If you've mm, ever heard... Yeah. Um, Pretty plaid skirt by Mel Smith and the right. Night Riders. It's like an amazing record, and and of course Joe Meek handled the British end of this. Sometimes, yes. literally, uh, <laughs> with like ridiculous records like um, like Sizzling Hot by mm. Jimmy Miller and the Barbecues, which is an uh, incredible record. It's the uh, the pure energy and contempt for musicality. And it's got a, mm. a like a T-chest bass on it, which is not even playing notes. It's just going dom, nom, 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 on the record. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think this one got through because it's kind of a novelty record. So it's not, yeah. it's not threatening and it's not like an actual lunatic screaming about some 16-year-old girl, which is what most of them are. It's like, <laughs> well, you know, it is it's, as primal as those other records, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yes. yeah. You know, it's three chords. Um, it's mostly just one chord. <laughs> and, you know, it's got this amazing dirty guitar sound and a great kind of mm. reverb on the vocal. And that's it. And that's all it needs. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's brilliant partly because of the same ignorance and stupidity that gives you lines like a camel was jitterbugging with a kangaroo you know in a jungle um Mm. because that spills over into the music you know which is like as it should be is magnificently dumb and exciting and it's all out of whack and everything's slightly out of tune um yeah and it's like a pure hit of everything that was being ironed out of music in the 70s and has now Mm. kind of been ironed out altogether i mean you get other nice disruptive things now but they tend to come from people using electronics uh it's very rare now that you hear uh, something that sounds you know 
disturbing because it's so raw. Well, if you compare this to um, Show Waddy Waddy's output in 1976, it, you know, it, it just such a clear difference. Yeah. And I can imagine virtually everybody who, uh, who went to a psychobilly club in the early 80s was jumping up and down to this as a kid. Totally. When it came out. Yeah. Yeah, this has got yeah. more in common with Stray Cats, Pole Cats, that kind of end. Yes. And the Meteors and all that kind of psychobilly yes. stuff. Yeah. Um, than with, you know, the sort of Ted, I suppose. I, I guess Shawadi Wadi were trying to be more of a kind of doo wop group. They're more of a sort of Dion and the Belmonts mm. kind of thing yeah. that, that they were doing, which is fair enough. Yeah, it's probably it's probably unfair to you know <laughs> compare Shawadi Wadi to this unfavorably. Mm. They weren't even trying to be like this. No, Matchbox were trying to be like this and failing. I'll say that this is yeah. an absolute rarity because it is, as far as I know, the only song that was danced to by Pan's people. And Legs and Co. Yes. We've done 35 episodes of this and we've never asked that question. Pans people or Legs and Co. So let's compare and contrast. So Legs and Co. have the skimpiest outfits by far mm. uh, because uh, they're wearing these sort of jungly bikinis whereas Pans people were dressed up as Lofty Sugden in, uh, <laughs> with b- blunderbusses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Legs and Co. have the better set because, you know, fucking hell, they've got Tony Blackburn in a pot. Pan's people had to double up as the rubbish animals. So there was a bit of camera yeah. trickery, but, you know, they, they, were, they were essentially doubling up. And, yes, this is, you know, this is late era Pan's people, so there's no Louise. So, you know, what are you saying, chaps? Well, just from an animal cruelty point of view, you know, I, I don't agree with uh, Pan's people hunting, for starters. Mm. You know, um, we live in a time where idiots in America go big game hunting in America, mm. uh, in, in Africa and uh, take photos of themselves posing in front of the corpses of lions. Mm. And yeah. um, I'm sorry, but I cannot condone Pan's people for encouraging that kind of behaviour. Yeah, that's true. But I'd be interested in what happens if you put the two of them together on the same stage at the same time. So you've got, yeah. you know, you've got the tooled up Pan's people with their massive fucking guns chasing, mm. you know, the sort of native clad uh, legs and co around. And in yeah. the middle of it, you've got a cooking pot and you've got all these animals getting in the way. That's what yeah. I want to see. Yeah. Well, the main difference is that Pan's people, uh, in comparison to Legs & Co, look like a troop of Valerie Singletons. They're <laughs> very sort of... They seem really old-fashioned already compared yeah. to that sort of sleekness and toughness of Legs & Co. Do you know mm. what I mean? Legs mm. & Co are women of the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, in a way that Pan's people are certainly not. Pan's no. people look like they're out of the Freeman's catalogue or something, you know. Yeah. And they're just as good. Um, and but yeah, it, it just st- the, stylistically, there's a, a suddenly a, a glaring difference. And they changed over at about the right time because sort of I guess early '76 was mm. about the time that the '70s made that move, mm. you know. Gearing up for the Avensies made that move to a slightly, uh, a slightly harder sort of uh, sleeker feel to, yeah. uh, to to clothes and to yeah. fashions and to just what people look like generally. Legs and Co were, were a lot more lithe, and Pan's people, um, not to put a finer point on it, they had a bit of meat on them, didn't they? Yeah, it's, that's the, it was the way of the early seventies. Yeah, it? it was uh, you know people. There were certain. Uh, keep fit and exercise and aerobics things that only came through in the 70s. Yeah. So if your job was something like being a dancer, 
mm. uh, yeah, you 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 would have looked very different by the end of the seventies compared mm. to what you would have looked like at the start of the seventies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I have to say, I'm I'm, a, I'm more of a pants people person myself. Yeah, because well, because I just fancied Louise and <laughs> and Cherry Gillespie. So yeah, you know. It boils down to that in the end. Who'd you fancy? But it's horses for courses. It's like, you you know, some days you might be in a people mood. Other times it's legs all the way. Mm. Hank Mazel was finally tracked down in April of this year in the town of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, where he was on the dole after working at a petrol station and in a shipping office. He was immediately whisked to Europe where he made the follow-up single, Kangaroo Rock which failed to chart. <laughs> yeah, I heard that song and it, it essentially suffers from 70s production. That's all it is. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's jungle rock, but more focused in on one animal. It sounds a bit, bit like a mud song. Yeah. And he died in 1992 at the age of 69. But it's safe to say that the re-release of Jungle Rock earned him more royalties than the 86 cents he earned on it in 1958. Oh, that's and a bit of the Jungle Rock. Now we've got a pussycat for... Oh, you've said the wrong thing. Why? Didn't he does not like pussycats. Oh, no, I had problems with a man called Hull. What? <laughs> Get on with it. Is he trying to say Mississippi and pussycat? Travis finally shows off something he's been desperate to pull out all episode. An emu puppet. A smaller version of the type that Rod Hall rammed his fist up, which went on sale this year, was great for annoying parents and even better for grabbing arses. I mean, that's just copying someone else's act. Yeah. I think Rod Hull and Emu were on the BBC at the time. or if They, they were, were on they... this very day. They've just been on, haven't they? Right. Just been on with Rolf Harris. So Travis has got like a toy version. Which I had actually. That's um, that yeah. might be another thing I got for Christmas this year. I did yes, get a toy. One of the, yeah, one of the one of the must have um, toys of the year, I think. Yeah. So mm. Travis just does a shit rod hole for yeah. about thirty seconds. If only he'd taken that yeah. a little bit further. <laughs> and they introduce Mississippi by Pussycat. <sighs> Formed in the province of Limburg, the Netherlands, in 1973, Sweet Reaction were a band who consisted of Tone, Bette and Marianne Kowalsik, three part-time telephone operators who were in the Schlager group The Singing Sisters, and three members of the local rock band Scum. (laughs) In late 1974, they sent a demo tape to the Dutch label EMI Behiva, which included Mississippi, which was written in 1969 by local songwriter Wernet Theunsen. And they were picked up on the strength of that song and changed their name to Pussycat. In 1975, the band made an appearance on the Dutch quiz show Twee Camp, a version of University Challenge, which used the theme tune to Please Sir to perform this song, which led to it selling like a bastard in the Netherlands and becoming their Christmas number one. Over here in 1976, it picked up loads of airplay on local radio, particularly in Liverpool, and it got to number one in October of this year when it dethroned Dancing Queen. Now, this might be my 
second least like number one. Yeah. Just on all the time. Fucking hated country music. Nobody needs Dutch cowboys, do they? Yeah. Sing about a canal. The thing is, this everything you've said so far is superfluous. What we should really have done for this is just have three minutes mm. of silence because, right? Like I don't <laughs> have anything really to say about it because every time I think back to when I watch this episode, there's a three minute blank in my memory, like right, right in the middle, of it, like <laughs> what you would get if you were a particularly fast moving serial killer. Except mm. that I happen to know that this void is not blotting out a bloody screaming mess. It's actually an accurate recollection of what happened in those three minutes. Um, (laughs) And the only remarkable thing about this record is how uninteresting it is, uh, how unmemorable it is. And so you examine it in forensic detail, looking for something to say, but it's colourless, odourless and tasteless. And that fact should be interesting in itself. But somehow, even that yeah. isn't interesting. And even that yeah. isn't interesting either. So in that <laughs> sense, this record is almost perfect, like the number zero. Um, mm. And, yeah, I have nothing, nothing to say about this. Simon? Um, every time we do a chart music, um, there's usually one song that I mm. don't remember at all, which is kind of yeah. to be expected because it's a sort of it's just your average weekly yeah. top of the pops, and there are going to be like low charting or even non charting yes. songs. But this is the greatest hits of the year, 1976, a year when yes. I was alive and when every other song is imprinted yeah. on my memory. Um, this is a complete blank to me. I actually di- um, discovered its existence um, uh, prior to this by I-, I was just reading through what was in the charts mm. in 76 and found this, and I just what. What the hell is it? And yeah, D- Dutch country and western. Um, I, you know, it could have been anything from from the title Mississippi mm. by Pussycat. It could have been some kind of um, dirty southern yeah. boogie or something like yeah. that. I've no idea. It could have been anything. Um, but yeah, it's. I, I suppose uh, it, again, like like the J uh, J Barry record, it, it shows you how big. Yeah. country was at the time um with mums and dads because yes. uh, in in the 70s your mums and dads would would go out to nightclubs uh, they get a babysitter in and they go out to nightclubs which weren't the ones where people were dancing no. to disco or having ovens or having ovens like no yeah, your mum wants to get away from that don't <laughs> they, she for a night exactly yeah 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 uh, they were they were nightclubs where uh i, I suppose they probably eat some food um I, yeah. I gather that the 70s uh cliche is chicken in a basket yes although i've never quite understood that or scampi. Like, does, scampi does it literally come in a basket like literally like usually either a wicker or a plastic basket with loads of um napkins and and the like and is it like bits of is it legs and wings or the whole ch- i mean I, I don't understand you get no, it's, with usually, it? it's usually legs and wings and it's, it's in in batter or, or breadcrumbs or you know it's, uh, depends where you go right man. okay well anyway that's the world that i think pussycat mississippi um yeah. comes from that's why it was a hit i think yeah um i've been on the mississippi where it rolls down to the sea as they sing in this song mm. and this isn't what it sounded like to me when i was there no. i mean the sounds of new orleans of course it's you know Cajun yeah. zydeco blues all that louisiana mm. all that kind of stuff doesn't sound this, this sounds much this sounds more like alabama or something you know way higher up um the country yeah. um the, the performance, there's not a lot to say. There are giant Lego pieces over their heads, which uh, yes. is, is that is the only memorable thing. And, and two guys 
randomly wearing sailor tops in the crowd. I don't know if it's because mm. it's about a river and that means boats or what, but that's it. Yeah. In in one ear out the other, to be honest. Yeah, it's essentially a song for the for your Ted mum and dad who calmed <laughs> it down a bit. And they just want a hint of it now. Yeah. Oh, well, that's enough, isn't it? But yeah, country and western. <laughs> Let's put them in yeah, a sack yeah, with is, a brick it in it. Fuck it. Yeah. Sling them into the fucking canal. <laughs> Sling them in the Mississippi and let the alligators have their way. The dancing alligators. <laughs> yes. On the previous one. With yes. tits. Yes. <laughs> so Mississippi stayed at number one for four fucking weeks. Yeah, aided aided by that promotional video where they're just on an old paddle steamer performing and nothing happens. <laughs> Until it was pulled down from the summit by If You Leave Me Now by Chicago. The follow-up, Smile, would get to number 24 in January of 1977, but they were done as a chart act in the UK. However, they go on to have a 10-year run of hits in Holland and surrounding countries before splitting up in 1985. I like to think they did songs about all the other rivers and that they they split up after Trent. <laughs> Ooze. Yes, who's <laughs> yes. something really big in Greece. There it is. BBC, BBC potatoes. And Demi's results. Travis and Edmund get in the obligatory joke about the state of the BBC canteen as they introduce Forever and Ever by Demis Roussos. Born in Alexandria, Egypt in 1946, Artemios Venturis Roussos was the son of a Greek classical guitarist who switched careers to become an engineer on the Suez Canal. At the age of 10, the family lost everything after the Suez Crisis and they moved back to Greece. A teenage Demis worked as a singer in tourist bars until 1967 when he joined the Greek rock band Aphrodite's Child, which featured the keyboardist Evangelos Papathanasiou, otherwise known as Vangelis, who he worked on with side projects such as a score for the 1970 film Sex Power. (laughs) Aphrodite's Child split up in 1972, but by then, Roussos was a year into a solo career, and he quickly notched up a string of hit LPs and singles in Europe, including this song, which was released in 1973. However... Britain wasn't biting at first, and he restricted his UK appearances to a Eurovision concert in 1972, a guest slot on the Nana Muscuri show in 1974, and an appearance on the Basil Brush show in 1975, where the godlike fox donned a matching kaftan. 
The latter appearance not only helped the single Happy to be on an island in the sun to get to number 5 over here in December 1975, but it also inspired the BBC producer John King to make a documentary about why he was so popular in Europe, which went out under the title The Roussos Phenomenon in June of this year. That inspired Phillips Records to rush out an EP under the same name with this song as its main track and it took four weeks to get to number one in the middle of July knocking you to me at everything by the real thing off its perch. And he's a good choice of on the Christmas episode because Mm. he is basically Santa as a younger man. Yes. (laughs) I I knew things had changed forever when Demis Roussos got trendy again, Mm. right? Where, like, people discovered Aphrodite's child and, you know, realised that he'd done some quite good AOR acid rock yeah. stuff solo. Um, you know, and I find that good that people are throwing away the stupid old old rules and getting into strange corners of pop history and seeing yeah. what they found there for what it really was. Um, although a lot of them found ways to transfer over their snobbiness or their weird possessiveness mm. or whatever anti-pop shit they'd been pulling five years earlier, you know. So it was harder to enjoy it. But, um, you know, at least it meant that some that people finally made reference to something other than Abigail's party yeah. whenever his name came up, just for a change. <laughs> but I think he's cool. He was like a, a, a Greek national hero, wasn't yes. he? Yes. Like being Greek was his big selling point for British listeners. It was like, uh, and it was a time when Greece really needed a hero. Yes, it did. Like still mostly being represented internationally by the bloke in Mind Your Language who might have been Spanish. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's what happens when you're a fascist dictatorship. It like wears away mm. the goodwill created from, you know, inventing the Olympics and stuff. And, Indeed. You know, at this point, they'd finally decided that. They'd been right the first time with their original idea of democracy. Um, yes. Yeah, and they needed they needed like a cuddly Demis Roussos. Uh, he was like their mascot. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. And it's yeah. It's only a shame Greece had fallen behind in aeronautics, or he could have been the first fat man in space. How brilliant would that have been? <laughs> I just for some yes. reason, whenever I see him, I picture him in one of those goldfish bowl helmets, like Mooncat doing a live broadcast. Yes. To Earth, like <laughs> here am I sitting in a tin can? It'd be how fucking great! It'd been amazing. Speaking of space, by the way, I went through Stevenage the other day, and there's a sign up by the railway line that says Stevenage, the heart of the UK space industry. <laughs> that oh, explains good the Lord. perceptible crackle of excitement in that tower. It's like oh, uh, I think Leicester would have something to say about that. Really. Uh, well, it's it's the home of the National Space Centre, isn't it? And fuck knows why. I mean, maybe they compete. maybe they knitted a jumper for Neil Armstrong or made some <laughs> space crisps, some crisp flavoured pills. Yeah, it's no, 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 no. Stevenage takes the crap. Welcome to Fairlands Valley Park. Next stop, Jupiter. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Back to Demis Roussos. Demis Roussos, yeah, very popular in the playgrounds at the time, I recall. Every young wag had an impression of him tucked into his snotty sleeve. Yeah, I mean, he was a favourite of TV impressionists because it's quite easy to do, isn't it? Yes. Um, do you think, though, because um, Taylor mentioned Abigail's party, do you think um, Alison Stedman or, I guess, Mike Lee killed him as an act? Or Because this was 1977 when Abigail's party came out. Um, or, or do you think that, you know, too much damage was already done anyway? 
I think the damage was already done, to be honest, because he was he was essentially Barry Whiter, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. This is what um, I found confusing as a as a prepubescent uh, child is is that uh, Beverly, played by Alison Steadman, does say he's sexy, isn't he, Ange? Oh, it's all he's right, sexy. isn't he? So this idea, and it wasn't just her. There was this idea around that uh, Demis Roussos was sexy. He's kind of fat Jesus. Mm. Yeah. And yes. I thought how, and it, but it was a time of weird sex symbols because you also had Kojak yeah. and you had Barry yeah. White. Well, people were branching out. Yeah, mm. it was kind of unconventionally sexy. But whereas Kojak and Barry White had these kind of deep, gravelly bass voices, fat Jesus here has got this kind of, <laughs> Tremulous high falsetto, which kind of um, implies yeah. uh, asexuality or, or you know kind of eunuch status, if anything. Yes. So it's yeah, it's kind of kind of weird that um, he was considered as such, but but it's nice. I'm I'm glad for him mm. that he was, and the fact that he was a big lad who liked his snap. It, it was a big selling point, wasn't it? You know this. Yeah. Well, this is a time before being obese was a style, wasn't it? You know, it was him, Cyril Smith, and the twins on the little motorbikes in the Guinness Book of Records. So would we care to guess? Just how heavy Demis Roussos was at the time. What do you know? Oh, I run chart music, mate, Matt. I've got to be thorough. Right. Oh, God. Um, it's going to be depressing because he'll be lighter than me, probably. Um, I'm going to say 17 stone. At this point, he was 17 and a half stone. Oh, he's slightly heavier than me. Get in. Because I remember about right. 18 months after this when the Elvis CBS special was shown on the telly. And my mum and dad were watching it. And they were absolutely mortified about what a big fat fucker Elvis was. And he was only 16 and a half mm. stone, which is, you know, that's nothing nowadays. You know, I've been 15 and a half stone. Yeah. I haven't done as many drugs, though. I dream of 15 and a half stone. I'll tell you what, talk to me after Christmas, jeez. I'll tell you what, though, don't you think that people fancying him and Barry White and Te- uh, Telly Savalas, it was like kink for people who weren't kinky but didn't want to feel left mm. out. Right? It's like, like I was, yeah, I've got to fancy a bold him. man or a really fat man, you know. It's just, you know, it's just do hmm. something a bit different. Fine, yeah. It was all in the in the air. But this song, it's, it's a bit of a... St- Still, at this time, posh holiday music, isn't it? The second song called Forever and Ever in this uh, episode. Yes, which raises the question, Forever and Ever by Demis Roussos or Forever and Ever by Slick? Oh, this one. This one all day. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, much yeah, better. yeah, There's nothing not to like about it. Nothing you can argue with about it, really. Mm. And also, like, Slick are standing around looking like slapped asses, and he looks weirdly, beatifically happy, mm. uh, particularly towards the end of this clip. It's not just that he looks cheerful... He looks uh, satisfied and fulfilled. Mm. Yeah. Um, he's like he's just watched his son take a first... It's like he's just watched his son complete his first five-course meal. Um, <laughs> or or, like, or he just taught his son not to shave. Um, yeah. it's like he's, he's either genuinely transported or he's... It's just smirking, perhaps, at the audience because really he's an old hippie freak and he's thinking... Mm. Fuck, I sang a whole double concept album based on the book of Revelation for you bastards and nothing. And now, yeah. here I am uh, delivering feta and you're <laughs> stuffing it into your ruddy Saxon faces like the pigs you are. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's what he's thinking. He's thinking, mm. I'd rather be receiving a birthday cake from Islamic Jihad. You know <laughs> Yes, yes, we'll, we'll come to that later. This record, right, what it is, it's like a nice smell. 
It's like it's mm. it's not it's not a sound. It's it's something that kind of wafts uh, into into your senses and then just wafts away mm. again. It's like it's like yes. walking past walking past a uh, um, you know a, a garden with you know some, some particularly pungent roses or walking past a restaurant just when it's cooking a really nice meal and you just mm. you just think for about thirty seconds. Oh, that's nice, and then it just goes again. And there's there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Not at all. Have you heard Aphrodite's Child? By the way, I've I've got. Um, and Aphrodite's Child LP, and it's it's pretty decent, you know. It's yeah. like yeah, it's kind of substantial hard psych. It's good stuff, you know. It's, uh, mm. uh, and I, I think even if it weren't for the fact that two of its members went on to be famous, it, it would still you know be worthy of uh, you know consideration. Yeah. So the Roussos phenomenon lingered at number one for a mere week, replaced by Don't Go Breaking My Heart. The follow-up. When Forever Has Gone, got to number two in October of this year, held off the top spot by Mississippi. But after two more singles that only made the high 30s in 1977, the killer blow arrived when Bev out of Abigail's party whacked this single on when she was pissed up, which eventually killed her husband, and he was done as a chart act in the UK. However, he continued to have hits across Europe during the 70s and 80s, and was on TWA Flight 847 in June of 1985, which was hijacked by members of Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad on its way from Athens to Rome but he was released unharmed after five days and said that they asked him to sing for them. And yes, he thanked them for giving him a birthday cake. I, I, I read that on Wikipedia and the hand immediately rose to the chin. So I did a bit of digging around and according to the June 19th, 1985 of the New York Times, quote, asked to confirm reports that he sang for the hijackers, Mr. Russo said, yes, they asked me to sing and I don't see why I shouldn't have sung. They even gave me a birthday cake said the singer, who celebrated his birthday Saturday while a hostage. These people, these nice people, they were so nice to me, I cannot tell you, added Mr. Roussos. Yeah, because the question is, where did they get cake from? Where, like, exactly. Did they rustle it up from ingredients <laughs> they found in the galley? Yeah, the great Islamic bake-off. Did they nip out to spa to get some eggs and flour? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Islamic jihad, right? The, the least imaginatively named of the Islamic <laughs> jihad groups. Somehow they got the wherewithal to to bake a fucking cake. Or maybe they just got one of those complimentary muffins off the trolley. <laughs> so there you go. Happy birthday, Christ, you infidel I, pig. After the uh, ABBA kidnapping story uh, in uh, Chart Music 34, and now this. And I guess there's also um, Brian Ferry being on that hijacked plane. It's quite, it's quite a hazardous business yeah. being a 70s pop star. Yeah, so Islamic Jihad, not just there for the nasty things in life. Yeah. Unless you're that American bloke who was shot and lobbed out of the plane. But, you know, never mind. They do a nice cake. Hope you are. Let's demi Russos. And right now, with a rhapsody from Bohemia, it's Queen. Realize, is this just fantasy? 
caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Travis is still pissing about with that fucking puppet as he and Edmund sign off with Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Formed in London in 1970, Queen, a fucking Queen. Released in late 1975, Bohemian Rhapsody is Bohemian fucking Rhapsody. I mean, what else do you want to know? It's fucking Bohemian Rhapsody, isn't it? Obvious first question, chaps. Have you seen the film? No. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> that went well. But, uh, despite having not seen it, I have much to say about it. Well, I did, for reasons I'll go yeah. into later. And I never got to the pictures. All right. Um, the main reaction I had from it was that I just could not believe that people nowadays are actually happy to get into a cinema early and watch 25 fucking minutes of adverts that they've already seen on the telly over and over and over again. People are not fucking real. <laughs> But the film, yeah, it's all right. It's essentially a film for Queen fans who are, as we know, not the most discerning people in the world. You, you know, you get all the songs and everything. Uh, you, you don't get to see any bum sex, but you get a few knowing looks at lorry drivers outside uh, toilets and stuff like that. Yeah. It's all right. It's the kind of thing that will pass the time on a pissing it down with Rain Bank Holiday Monday on Channel 5. And it plays fast and loose with a timeline, doesn't it, famously? Oh, yes. The thing about Queen is that they became mm. national treasures for all the wrong reasons, right? It's like what was good about them mm. was their commitment to uh, hedonism and silliness and sort of anti-pompous pomp and deliberate, yeah. liberating stupidity, right? Like... They're remembered now almost exclusively mm. for this and for their mediocre 80s hits, you know, which like, which is a shame because for a while they were quite yeah. an interesting band in as much as they were, they were like a cross between Led Zeppelin and Sparks, um, albeit not as good as either of those. But that period of their career is almost forgotten now, which is really odd, like records like Sheer Heart Attack and yeah. stuff, you know. That's really the good stuff and it's almost vanished now culturally. Um, and they've become... Icons yeah. of sort of harmless Britishness, like and Princess Di style mm. vicarious tragedy, and that kind of reassurance that it's all just a laugh, really. This rock and rolling, you know, and there's nothing to worry about. And the enduring image is Freddie Mercury meaningless at Live Aid, and Brian May playing his guitar, mm. which he made himself out of a fireplace. Uh, standing on the roof of Buckingham <laughs> Palace. And the thing about this film, it everything I've read about it says that it seems to suggest that really his downfall was abandoning the quiet happiness of his domestic heterosexual life for, for the misery mm. and degradation and inevitable punishment associated with the, the loose homosexual netherworld. Um which, uh, if that is true, and I've got no reason to believe it isn't, it's obviously a fucking disgrace. But in a way, it's a tribute to him because mm. it shows that people who think like that can love him regardless because the power of his yes. charisma, the power of his empty but undeniable charisma burns away like the scent of all that bumming, you know, and sells him to the straight world like <laughs> in, in both senses. But who needs that, right? Who needs... Uh, a Daily Mail Sybarite, you know, like it, it because it makes him like 
some 15th century monarch just, you know, out outlawing the printing press and then dying from a surfeit of lampreys. It's, uh, I mean, God bless him, but it, <laughs> it, it should have been different, you know, because just the sheer uh, not giving a fuckness of early Queen is really what was good and important about them. And they, sh- uh, they should have made more of it. Mm. While I agree with a lot of what you say, and I'm going to pick up on a few points of it, I just want to ask what you meant by meaningless at Live Aid. Mm. Well, just that it's like it's uh, what today they call an iconic image, right? In that people think of it as it's like the if you asked certain people to illustrate rock, right? What what does rock look like? And you see Freddie Mercury in a white vest with one fist in the air, right? I.e. nothing. It's just you know, he's just uh, larking about. Mm. You know, there's nothing to it. There's no suggestion of. Uh, of um, sedition or or dirtiness or or anything, it's just it's entertainment for for Charles and Die, you know. <laughs> well, not just for Charles and Die, and it was extraordinary entertainment, surely. Mm. I mean, surely it's ev- surely um, you know it's one of these cases where just because everybody says something doesn't mean they're wrong. What what a performance! Mm. Yeah, it's all right. Back me up, Al. Come on, uh, you don't agree, do you? Uh, uh, can't we just talk about Brexit, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, you're right, everything in the film leads up to the full recreation of the Live Aid performance, which is, you know, it's very impressive. It's a, it's a, it's a perfect recreation. Yeah. And, you know, if you were a Queen fan, you'd be sitting there in the pictures fucking rubbing your same bandit. But, yeah, the, the storyline's all bollocks because they're supposed to have split up and reformed for Live Aid when it was blatantly obvious that right from the off, Queen were the only ones to realise what the prize was at the end of this. Yeah. They were touring earlier that year and they were still putting plenty of records out. Yeah, stuff. exactly. Yeah, yeah it, is a, it is a very good and professional stadium performance. Mm. Uh, I just wish that... See, what I wish is that Queen had become what they could have been, which is the kind of band that could have given a performance like that, but possibly wouldn't have been asked to do it at Live Aid. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or maybe they would have been asked, but maybe they, you know, maybe it would have been a little bit inappropriate in some ways. Because they got absolutely slagged down for doing We Are The Champions at Live Aid in the media. Did they? Why? Well, because they thought it was a bit much to pitch up at a gig for the starving and being all triumphalist. Yeah, but that's that's what their music is, isn't it? All their music's like that. They yeah. Can't, they can't come on and sort of like, you know, just come on with like fake tears <laughs> painted on their face, you know. See that that argument, I don't, I don't have much time for. But it's just, yeah, I just, uh, I just miss what mm. Queen could have been. I want to pick up on the word pomposity that you use, and I'm not criticising you for using it at all. I think you're absolutely correct. But for me, um, that unlocks the reasons why a lot of rock critics mm. hated Queen. Yeah. Um, I remember this this question. I think the question came up when we were doing the uh, chart yeah. music extra, uh, and we didn't use it in the end. Um, Saved it for this. Why, why do critics hate Queen, or why did they? And and I I, I think I think the reason is that um, certainly in that era, critics could take plenty of pomposity as long as it was being done mm. uh, in the name yeah. of art. Yeah. As long as it was uh, as as long as it was being done by people who had albums called things like Tales from Topographic Oceans, and that the pomposity was was all part of that. But when the pomposity was just basically a layer on top of 
pop or pop rock, which is what Queen were making, then mm. that was unconscionable yeah. to them. It, you know, it was basically um, you you were allowed to show off about art, but you weren't allowed to, if if you're just making pop, you had to be mm. humble and know your place, and that and that's something Queen never did. And people absolutely, I mean, Danny Baker hated Queen for yes. um, for pretty much those reasons for being too kind of uh, too much like you know um, a sort of Bourbon monarch. Uh, you know, Fr- Freddie Mercury toasting the audience at Wembley with with a glass of champagne and stuff like that is is what is what Baker hated about them. The reason why punk happened, according to him, I, I suppose in in some ways it's what made their music a little bit diff- mm. difficult for me to stomach because um, they just have a, a a way of almost probably without even thinking about it. Um, maybe Freddie and Brian um, both almost involuntarily added these flourishes on the end of every line of of, of a song. It's like like that you know that kind mm. of melodic thing and um that's kind of not how i wanted my music to be um uh, but the obvious comparison these days is muse muse do exactly that same thing and well half the world goes oh you're just a queen ripoff and and you know you're shit and the other half seems to quite enjoy them being like that yeah um, I, I quite enjoy it um i've i've met brian may by the way i've i've touched his sixpence <gasps> good lord I've, really yes. I, I've I've held a sixpence in my hand. Um, yeah, I, 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 it was a, a birthday party of uh, uh, Justin Hawkins from the Darkness. It's no surprise that uh, those two were, were friends. Uh, mm. I met um, I, I met his wife as well. Um, <gasps> Angie Watts. Uh, yeah, uh, Angie Watts. Yeah, yeah, out of East Good Enders. Lord. <laughs> Did you uh, hold her no, tuppence? She asked my phone number, and I wrote it down for her. And she stuck it in her bra, but it was the last. When you when you her. when you handed it to her, did you resist the temptation to go? Merry Christmas, Ange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now she was perfectly nice, but she was offering to get me tickets for We Will Rock You, which um, certain members of my family would have been really pleased if I could take them to that. Um, yeah. mm. And she goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll phone you," but um, but she never did, so I had to buy them. Yeah. Oh. Um, no, going back to what you were saying though about rock critics yeah. in the seventies and eighties, the thing about Queen when they were great and when they were less great. They were dead set against everything that mattered to music journalists in the 70s, when you think about it. In that, yeah, they were unserious. They were super commercial. Um, they were effeminate. Because um, people forget this. Rock criticism used to be a very macho thing. Yes. Um, they were ideology-free, uh, non-countercultural. Um, and not only were they pompous and over the top, they were delighted to be that way. Yeah. And they loved their money very visibly mm. and unashamedly. And then playing Sun City put the lid on it. Yes. Um, and I think nowadays people just have a different perspective. That um, uh, those most of those traits are no longer seen as particularly offensive. Mm. And I think people now uh, critics probably have them in in better. Uh, they kind of have the right perspective now, right? In that they were entertaining and did a lot of really good, undemanding rock music, plus a lot of crap. And, yeah, those negative qualities weren't that negative in the grand scheme of things, except for playing Sun City, but that's been quietly kicked under the rug, hasn't it? Well, you mentioned Sun City, and yes, for me, that was a real problem for for a long time. Um, But I had to do a similar thing to what I did with Elton John, where I had to almost take apart my... Uh, instinctive He's opposition to a band and, and see if it stood up and the Sun City thing, yeah it was awful but when you look at the list of artists who played Sun City, 
It's Queen mm. who get all the stick for it, but all kinds of people. Dusty Springfield played Sun City. You know, and gives her a hard time. Do you know what I mean? So Tina Turner, status quo, Rod Stewart, Laura Branigan, yeah. Elton John, Little Stephen. No, no, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, so so there is that. Um, so this this record, we it's it's such a monolith of. It's it's almost impossible to talk about, and it's also well exactly yeah. Me, Sarah, and David have already had a dig at it, and it it, yeah. it was like trying to do a book review on the Bible. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's just always been there. Yes, yeah. I mean for me as an eight year old, this would have been my introduction to rock. You know, particularly the end bit. Oh yeah, where it suddenly switches to a live a live performance. It switches from that kind of weird fly eye strobing camera effect, and suddenly it's a boom. You're on stage with them. Yeah. Yes. The the Wayne's World bit is what we're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The thing that always sort of bothers me about this song is like bits bolted together is like the easy sort of cheaty way to do uh, progressive. Do you know what I mean? It's like rather than trying to expand Mm. and develop the actual content, you just expand the form and create one of these Franken songs made out of bits, you know, made out of spare parts. And Mm. people love it because they're impressed by the sheer size of the result. And... They sort of, they don't realise it. Yeah. it's actually a really simple trick, and in fact, none of those individual little bits are really good enough to sustain a normal song by itself, or cer- certainly not a number mm. one. I mean, Baron Knights did it. Yes, <laughs> I tell you another thing that struck me watching this is that um, Roger Taylor is generally thought of as being a pretty man, um, mm. particularly um, in the video to "I Want to Break Free," where he's dressed as a schoolgirl, yes. and a lot of people found it very sexually confusing to see him like that. Mm. Um, but uh, in this video, because uh, he's underlit, well, they're all underlit, aren't they? They're all doing that thing, yeah. like when you're a kid and you get a torch and you stick it under your chin to try and be scary, right? Mm. He looks like the Ipswich Town defender Eric Gates. He, he yes. doesn't look like a pretty man anymore. <laughs> it's really weird. So anything else to say about this? Not really. All you can do is talk around it. You can't, yeah. you can't, you, you can't look at, you can't look up at it. It's just too big. You can't talk about mm. it. Um yeah. I will also observe it's the second song to prominently feature the words Mamma Mia uh, in this yes. episode. And I, I'm imagining... Yeah, using it, Italian words was quite a thing in 1976, wasn't it? You know, Mamma yeah. Mia, uh, Cornetto. <laughs> <laughs> and just watching this episode had me imagining a Queen and J.J. Barry mashup where Freddie's going, Freddie's going, Mamma, <laughs> I don't want to die. I sometimes wish I'd never been born at all. And yes. she goes, no charge. <laughs> Killed a man, $15. <laughs> Not wanting to die, $5. Anyway, Bohemian Rhapsody was number one forever and ever and ever and ever. But uh, I, I feel it's now the time for me to drop my heartwarming yeah. Christmas Freddie Mercury story. Well, it's not mine. It's me mate's. So, round about the 90s, um, my mate, he was a drama student at Lambda in, in Earl's Court, and there kind of like studio backed onto Freddie Mercury's house oh yeah so anyway uh, they have their end of term drink up and him and his mate are walking back from the pub pissed out of their schools and they walk past Freddie Mercury's house and they look at each other and they go up to the door and ring the bell and start singing Christmas carols and after they've done that for about 20 seconds his mate starts singing thank god it's Christmas and my mate joins in (laughs) And the next thing they know, they see this like really early um, CCTV camera just swiveling round and focusing on them. And uh, a couple of seconds later, the door opens and the door's filled by this massive bodyguard. 
and he sticks his hands in his pockets and he pulls out two £20 notes and he gives them a tenner each and he says, there you go lads, Merry Christmas, we'll be saying goodnight now. And about a week later, Freddie Mercury died. So essentially Freddie Mercury was on his deathbed being serenaded by my mate and his mate and 27 years later, my mate is in Bohemian Rhapsody. No way. Playing... Freddie Mercury's dad. No! (laughs) That's fucking insane, isn't it? That is brilliant. Merry Christmas, everyone. Wow. I'm sorry I gave it such a a bad once-removed review there. Yeah. I touched the turkey, I touched it, it's real. Anyway, have a really good Christmas day. Thanks a lot for joining us. We leave you legs and company and a bit of wings. Have a nice Christmas. Oh, is that I've only got two seconds left? Have a nice Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Ta-da. DLT and Noel sign off uh, with possibly the worst joke that there's ever been. Because... Noel says, uh, yeah, coming up now, he's referring to the turkey. This is the joke, you see. He says, coming up now. Yeah, because first of all, DLT says, I touched the turkey. It's real in a silly northern voice because right. northern equals fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then Noel says, uh, yeah, and now it's, uh, we've got a bit of legs and company uh, and wings. Right, as, as we'll leave you with some wings, and I, yeah, yeah, I thought he meant it. Yeah, as though he's introducing Legs and Co. dancing to wings. Yeah, and then when the penny drops, that that that's actually some sort of joke. You're just like, oh, right, huh. yeah, and it because it cuts straight to whole lot of love and the end credits. Yeah. and I, I thought, have, have they missed a bit out here? So the effect is, it ends the show on a massive anticlimax. Yeah, a joke that doesn't land, and people feeling a bit let down. Yeah. People seeing the end credits when they thought they were going to get another track. And as if that wasn't bad enough, DLT provides a little topper by shouting, Oh, I've only got two seconds left! Uh, um, sadly, he doesn't mean to live. Um, but but it's... And then that's it. That's the end. And it, it, it really does apply the final toe poke to this programme and to Christmas as an institution. I mean, these fellas, right, if nothing else... They really knew how to murder an already terrible idea and then stomp it into the fucking dirt. And they, and that'll be why they've got country mansions with helicopters parked on the roof while we're all eating mouldy rats from behind the stove, you know. And we're lucky to have a stove. And they just, or they just keep knocking them out of the park. You've got to, you've got to hand it to them. You've got to hand it to them. And by it, I mean... A Christmas present packed with Semtex and rusty drawing pins and collar. So, what's on telly for the rest of the day? Well, BBC One broadcasts the Queen's speech where she brags on about going to America and tells the people of Britain to stop having a go at each other and to just calm the fuck down before getting stuck into Billy Smart's Christmas Circus, Oliver and the Evening News with Peter Woods. Then it's a special Christmas Generation game, followed by that year's Morecambe and Wise Christmas show, featuring Elton John, Kate O'Mara, John Thor and Dennis Waterman, the Nolans, and that bit where Angela Rippon got her legs out and everything. Then it's the film, Airport, followed by the news, 
and they finish off with a Parkinson magic show, featuring three of the world's greatest magicians having a blather with the titular professional Yorkshireman. BBC Two runs the Queen gassing on and then puts on the animated version of the Snow Queen, featuring the voices of John Wells, Vivian Stanshall, Sheila Stiefel and Arthur Mullard. Then a stage version of Alice Through the Looking Glass. Then Audition, an animated five-minute documentary about a conversation between a choir master and a lad who wants to join the choir. Then the news on two. Then Ica the Polar Bear, a documentary about said bear who was born in Berlin Zoo, who was brought up as a pet in Siberia, who was then released into the wild. Then it's 40 years a three-hour rummage through the BBC archives, Late News on 2, Survival in Limbo, a documentary about a bloke who's marooned on the edge of the Atlantic for 116 days, Sing All Ye Faithful, which is more fucking carols from Devonshire, and they finish off with the James Cagney film Yankee Doodle Dandy. ITV gets the Queen bollocks out of the way and piles into the film version of Please Sir. Then a special winner's version of the talent show New Faces with Our Kid and Crick's Canine Wonders. Then Gordon Honeycomb gets stuck with having to come in to do the news. The evening begins proper with Christmas Sale of the Century. Then it's the John Curry Eye Spectacular, followed by the 1970 Rod Steiger film Waterloo, then a special Christmas episode of Two's Company with Donald Sindon and Elaine Stritch. Then it's Celebration, some more singing, this time in the chambers of Castle Cock, near Cardiff with Petuli Clark. Oh, for fuck's sake. Castell Cock means the Red Castle. All right, all right, sorry, Simon. Let me, let me do that again. <laughs> Carry on. Celebration, more singing, this time in the chambers of the Red Castle near Cardiff <laughs> with Petula Clark, and finishes off with a five-minute show called Christmas Pie, where kids of the Hinchley Wood School tell us what presents they would give to the world this year. So, me boys, what are we talking about over the handlebars of our new rally choppers this afternoon? You know what? Probably the Wurzels, because I was a child and they were fun. I would say Tony Blackburn in a cauldron preparing to be the victim of cannibalism uh, and <laughs> and actually not talking about the strange meditative silence in which we all watched Legs & Co perform Dancing Queen. And what are we buying with our record tokens on Boxing Day? I, I wasn't uh, buying records yet, but if I was, I'm going to say Dancing Queen or Jungle Rock, maybe both. Yeah, in fact, ABBA 1 and ABBA 2 uh, and... And Jungle Rock. And what does this episode tell us about 1976? Pussycat are the kings of the ruined castle. They're the invisible kings and queens of the ruined castle. Yeah, I mean, I know um, if you watch any um, end of your um, Top of the Pops from uh, the golden age of pop, um, you're going to come away thinking, oh, that was a, a year for you know huge songs. But there's something about the big number one hits of 1976, which... Uh, a lot of these songs feel like you know these kind of monumental songs, the biggest songs of all time. It's, it seems like a year in which a lot of the the you know, I'm not going to say greatest because that implies my, my own approval, but the biggest songs of all time uh, seem to happen in that year. And that pop craze youngsters is the end of another episode of Chart Music and the last one of 2018. All that needs to be done now is to fling the usual promotional shit at you. www.chart-music.co.uk Facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast Twitter 
chart music TOTP, money down the G-string, mm, patreon.com slash chart music. Thank you, Simon Price. A Burma dog is for life, not just for Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody, and a happy new year. God bless you, Taylor Parks. Happy holidays, Al. And on behalf of David Stubbs, Sarah B, Neil Kulkarner and Bummer Dog, my name's Al Needham. Beware the gummy woman. (laughs) Sharp music. you bought a 1977 calendar yet? Why not buy one with a difference? The 1977 Radio 1 DJ calendar contains 12 stunning pictures of all your favorite DJs in full color. If you'd like one, send a check or postal order for one pound to Radio 1 Offers, P.O. Box 247, Portishead, Bristol, BS20, 9SG. And don't forget to include your own name and address. That's Radio 1 Offers, P.O. Box 247, Portishead, Bristol, BS20, 9SG. 247!